The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What is Blackwater? It's the former name of a U.S. private security contractor now known as Academy, a controversial organization working in a controversial space, a company operating in the frightening for some intersection of the public and private sector, a company that profits in dangerous scenarios. But is that necessarily a bad thing? Someone is needed to step into a disaster scenario. Is it inherently wrong for them to make some money doing so? Blackwater founder, former Navy SEAL Eric Prince has stated that someone has to be in the business of top 10 worst situations ever. And privately run businesses, not bound by bureaucratic red tape, can get people and resources to places where people need them much quicker than traditional options. Blackwater began as a training facility for law enforcement in 1997 in the swampy marshes of North Carolina. They would soon expand to have many subsidiary companies, one of which was a private security company very active in Iraq and Afghanistan during the 2000s. And what they would do there, especially the 2007 shooting of 17 Iraqi civilians by Blackwater employees, drew a lot of criticism. How much of that criticism has been fair? Subsequent lawsuits and FBI investigations would ask, was Blackwater looking out for its own people at the expense of everyone else? Was shooting civilians justified? Blackwater would later evolve into Academy, part of a much larger company, a company no longer owned by Prince. Eric Prince, the person at the heart of the suck, quite the divisive character. Is he a free market military hero who saves people in need or someone who capitalizes on the worst days of people's lives? or both, somewhere in the middle. And again, is the second part wrong? Someone has to do that, don't they? Should private companies or what are essentially private armies ever be used by governments as security forces or as troops themselves? Is that a slippery slope, a dangerous one? How loyal can a profit-focused military be? War, never fought one, but studied a lot of them. They're always messy. The nature of warfare is and will forever be tied to tragedy. You can't always take the high road, not if you want to win, but the modern world does have rules of engagement. Does Blackwater follow them? Or is the existence of private military contractors like Blackwater a great way to sneak past these rules? So much to look into today 
on a military-industrial complex as fuck. Covert operations destroy this message after reading it edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, everybody. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M. Y'all rock. It'll be in season here soon around the Suck Dungeon. Recording out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho again today, location of the Suck Dungeon. I'm Dan Cummins, unofficial Doobie Brothers roadie, the master mushmouth, king of the curious, sovereign of the suckers, and you are listening to Time Suck. Couple very quick announcements and then into so much show today. Uh, Richard Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento, making it onto a hell high yearbook tee this week at badmagicmerch.com in the store there. Voted most likely to be scarier than an actual vampire. Uh, voted least likely to, to be a great babysitter. Dear God, that dude was so scary and so insane. Literally so insane. Uh, store at badmagicproductions.com for any merch-related questions. Uh, the Bad Magic uh, Productions charity this month is the USC Shoah Foundation. Guessing we'll be given around $12,500. Recording this suck in advance of when we get paid from Patreon, so don't know the exact figure. A uh, reminder that 20% of all Bad Magic Patreon donations go straight to charity every month. Uh, sfi.usc.edu. Link in the episode description if you want to learn more or donate more. Their mission statement is to develop empathy, understanding, and respect through testimony. Uh, the USC Show Foundation has a huge archive of firsthand atrocity testimony to make it so much harder to deny or forget, you know, terrible events like the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide, the Rwandan genocide, etc. Keeping history alive to reduce the odds that we repeat terrible acts. Uh, also, Texas suckers, we will be donating to a, a storm relief charity next month. Sorry for the shit you are currently dealing with. Uh, and now, topic time. Uh, we have a very controversial topic today. Not only Blackwater and Eric Prince, but the whole idea of private military contracting in general. How will we, how will we excuse me, be covering this topic today uh, in the most biased way as humanly possible? And if you don't like it, you know what? You can go fuck yourself, Snowflake. <laughs> JK, come on, gosh dang. Come on. No, that's probably a terrible way to cover it. Now, we're going to cover it by trying to present a thorough look into where the private military contracting is at today, where the industry is at today. We'll look into the history of private militaries around the world and to better understand Blackwater, a.k.a. Academy, a.k.a. so many other names for the same company and so many other similar companies. Uh, and, you know, to best understand the, the current role of PMCs in war zones and or hostile areas around the globe. Uh, first, we'll briefly look into the history of hired guns and PMCs, a.k.a. private military companies, not just in the U.S., but also in the world at large. Then we'll take a look at the U.S. military's recent use of and reliance on private military security contractors. Why do they exist at all? Also, when in their modern form did PMCs first start to be utilized? Why are private contractors operating in war zones and or internationally hostile areas uh, as opposed to, you know, additional soldiers and or additional Marines? What does all this have to do with money? Hint, quite a bit. Most things end up seeming to have quite a bit to do with money. Uh, we'll also look under the hood at the multi-billion dollar industry of PMCs, of which Academy, aka Blackwater, is just one contractor of many. How big is this industry? And what's the job like? How much does it pay versus being in the military? We'll also look at the life of Blackwater founder, Eric Prince, and the wealthy and pretty influ influential family he comes from. And we'll jump into our timeline for most of that. Uh, Eric has led an interesting life. We'll look into how and why he founded Blackwater, how he grew the company, 
who's uh, who's hired Blackwater and for what purpose. And of course, we'll look into some of the controversies they've been involved in, including what has been dubbed the infamous uh, Nisor Square Massacre of September 2007. And finally, I'll be doing some pontificating on the ethics of all of this throughout the ep- episode. And I'll do my best to distinguish my opinions from actual factual information. So you'll know when to tell me to shove something up my ass or shut the fuck up or whatever. I, I get it. Uh, if you find all this uh, half as interesting as I do, I think you're going to really like this suck. Now let's yip, yip, yaw on out of here and get into this shit. Come on, good boy Bojangles. Everyone knows you got a rock hard red rocket war boner for today's suck. Private military contracting in some form or another has been around since the dawn of civilization. There have been mercenaries since the earliest days of organized warfare, and I know there is a distinction between mercenaries and contractors. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, mention it. Um, we've saw quite a few dictators who've employed, you know, hired guns. Napoleon used them. So did Genghis Khan. One of the oldest civilizations in the world we have extensive written information uh, on are the ancient Greeks, and the ancient Greeks wrote of paid soldiers. Uh, as chronicled in the 5th BCE historian Xenophon's historical work, uh, Anabasis, the 10,000, they were a motley assortment of Greek warriors contracted by Cyrus the Younger to help oust his brother, King Artur, oh boy, Artaxerxes from the Persian throne. <laughs> I love how it's Cyrus uh, and Artaxerxes. Real easy with one name, real uh, difficult with the other in that family. Uh, hi, I'm Bob, and this is my brother, uh, what? Um, Xenophon, a student and friend of Socrates, was himself a soldier for hire. He was one of the 10,000's commanders. And in 401 BCE, these Hellenic private, sold- private soldiers, many of them hardened Greek veterans of the Peloponnesian War, fought alongside Cyrus and his rebel army in a clash with the king's forces near Baghdad. While the 10,000 held their own in combat, Cyrus was killed in battle. And then the uh, hired guns generals were double-crossed and murdered while trying to negotiate a retreat. Under pursuit from uh, Artaxerxes II, got to make sure you get the second in there, Artaxerxes II's troops and hostile natives alike, the surviving members of the 10,000 had to fight their way out of enemy territory. After electing Xenophon as one of their new leaders, the army of rogues embarked on a grueling nine-month odyssey that took them from the heart of Babylonia all the way to the Greek Black Sea port at Trapezus. Despite facing constant ambushes, ambushes, punishing weather and famine, they arrived on friendly soil with nearly three-fourths of their remaining numbers still intact. Their struggles chronicled in the oldest written narrative we have regarding the adventures of a private army. Uh, to throw things back to the location and time of our Dante's Inferno suck from uh, two weeks ago, the White Company was one of the most infamous of these so-called free companies of the Middle Ages. Bands of for-profit soldiers conducting the lion's share of warfare in 14th century Italy. This particular unit rose to prominence in the 1360s, falling under the command of Sir John Hawkwood. That's a badass name. Mr. Hawkwood! Thank you very much. Uh, An Englishman who had been knighted for his service in the Hundred Years' War with Hawkwood at the helm. Fucking classic Hawkwood. Always running shit. With Hawkwood at the helm, the White Company became known as one of the most elite mercenary armies in Italy. Its troops, a cultural hodgepodge of English, German, uh, Breton, a.k.a. Western French peoples and Hungarian adventurers were renowned for their skill with the longbow and the lance, and they terrified opponents with their lightning-quick surprise attacks and willingness to do battle during harsh weather or at night. In an era when Italy was splintered between warring city-states and medieval lords, the men of the White Company made a killing 
auctioning their services off to the highest bidder. Between 1360, pun not intended back there. I just caught it myself. Between 1363 and 1388, they fought both for and against the Pope, the city-state of Milan, and the city-state of Dante's Florence. And I love these guys uh, fought for the papacy. We fight for the Christian glory of the one true God's living vessel here on earth. And then later, when the money was right, would fight against the Vatican. How dare you try to buy our souls with gold? Fight against the Bishop of Rome? Are you mad? How much did you say you were going to pay us again? Oh, I, I misheard you. Really? Disregard my previous statements. We fight against the tyranny of the evil false prophet who misrepresents, obviously, the, the one true God. Money, money talks. Uh, there were also the Vikings of the, of the Varangian Guard. Come on, mouth. Valhalla. We fight for Odin, Ufta, and for Thor, Hoingi Boingi, and so forth and whatnot. Uh, the descendants of Norsemen who originally ventured south as pirates and traitors, the Varangian Guard were a band of Viking mercenaries paid to serve as the personal bodyguards of the Byzantine emperor. The guard uh, first took up their post in the late 10th century for the emperor Basil II, who preferred the axe-wielding barbarians to his more easily corruptible countrymen. The unit immediately proved useful in putting down a rebellion, and they went on to serve as the protectors of Constantinople for over 200 years. At first, the Varangian Guard was almost entirely composed of hard-fighting, hard-drinking Vikings. But by the late 11th century, their ranks began to be filled out by Englishmen, Normans, and Danes, winning entrance into this unit no easy task. Initiates had to demonstrate their prowess in battle. They were forced to pay a small fortune in gold as an entrance fee. These guys only wanted fierce and industrious men who could bring both wealth and might into their ranks. The gifts showered on the Varangians ensured that its members left extremely wealthy, and some even went on to achieve positions of immense power in Europe. One of the most famous guardsmen was Harald uh, Hardrada, who claimed the, th the throne of Norway later. If you were a Varangian, you made a shitload more money than the average soldier of your day. Just like today, it often pays to go private. Uh, basically, for as long as there have been wars, there have been soldiers paid to fight in those wars which just makes sense. If you were some ruler and you didn't have the manpower to defend your throne or to try to add to your territory, but you did have the coin to hire an army who could carry out your ambitions, why wouldn't you do that? The concept of soldiers for hire is anything but new. And it's happened in the U.S. since the very beginning of the U.S. The British hired 30,000 Hessian soldiers to try and squash the American rebellion. And while Hessians weren't technically, you know, uh, mercenaries, soldiers, were hired. they were hired guns. Technically, they were auxiliaries. Uh, what's the difference? Uh, Hessian soldiers didn't join a private army. They were conscripted to serve the Landgrave Frederick II, royal ruler of the Holy Roman Empire Principality of Hesse, and then he loaned them out, which they didn't really seem to mind. It was a good job. They got paid well to be Hessian soldiers. Uh, as a source of funding throughout the 18th century, many German states regularly rented out the services of their troops to fight in wars in which they had no personal involvement. Uh, the French also hired soldiers to fight in the Revolutionary War to assist the Americans. Later in World War I, American former military men went to war as private contractors. On Monday, March 19, 1917, three Americans strapped into the cockpits of their single-seat biplanes on a French airfield and embarked on a reconnaissance mission. The U.S. was weeks away from declaring war on Germany and entering World War I, but these Americans, natives of Illinois, New York, and Massachusetts, sailed to France to aid the country in its conflict with Germany. The American trio, members of an elite squadron known as the Lafayette Escadrille, 38 American pilots, also known as the Valiant 38, would be paid to fight in this squadron. 
paid no more than any French soldier fighting for France, it seems, but still paid to fight for a country that was not their own. And many of these uh, soldiers, there would be more that would join them later, would die fighting for France. Uh, other Americans, you know, would be hired to fight in other French squadrons. Uh, World War II also featured hired American guns and what amounted to American mercenaries fighting as pilots in China against the Japanese before the U.S. officially entered the war, before Pearl Harbor. Uh, officially known as the American Volunteer Group, the famed Flying Tigers were a three-squadron force of fighter pilots who fought with the Chinese against the Japanese in the very early days of World War II. The unit was first organized, uh, you know, for America at least, early days. Uh, the unit was first organized in early 1941 in the months just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Eager to impede the Japanese takeover of China while still remaining neutral, President Franklin D. Roosevelt allowed former U.S. military officer Claire Chenault to quietly recruit fighter jocks from the ranks of the U.S. Army Air Force. The risks were high, but so was the pay. While most Air Force pilots received a salary of about 260 bucks a month back then, Chenault's mercenaries earned between 600 and 750, along with a $500 bonus for each Japanese aircraft they shot down. And they collected a lot of those bonuses. 19 different Flying Tiger pilots, real-life Top Guns, made at least $2,500 in bonuses for shooting down at least five enemy planes apiece. The squadron was credited with taking down 297 total enemy aircrafts. So much yip and yah! And those brave sons of bitches, Bojangles is over in the corner shadowboxing, listening to Eye of the Tiger right now. The shit gets him fucking pumped! Uh, and just over six months, the group uh, you know, of over 300 pilots was disbanded, and then they fought for the U.S. military now that the U.S. Uh, was officially in the war. While fighting in China, 14 were killed in action, captured, or disappeared during flying tiger combat missions. So they, you know, they shot down a lot of enemy aircraft in a short amount of time. Pretty cool history. Uh, I'd go, you know, back further, but it would, uh, you know, or into it deeper, but it would take away from today's focus, which is Blackwater. Just wanted to establish that soldiers for hire have been around for a long, long time. Uh, you know, that they've fought in American wars, that American military have been hired to fight in others' wars long before Blackwater. Uh, but the modern defense industry, a.k.a. the military-industrial complex, is a lot different than it was back in the days of World War II and previous to that time. It's now a gigantic, complex behemoth, far bigger than it was, you know, back in that era. A lot more security contractors have been hired in recent decades than ever before, uh, by far. There is far more coordination, coordination between the Department of Defense and private military contracts uh, contractors than ever before. So while companies similar to Blackwater have existed for millennia, the way they're being used in today's modern American military is new. So let's now look at the U.S. military's recent use of and reliance on private security contractors. Uh, Blackwater is, actually, and can I just uh, refer to it as Blackwater instead of Blackwater, you know, Academy uh, going forward? It's a name most people recognize. Uh, Blackwater is first and foremost a privately owned security force with contracts with the U.S. military and others to do a variety of military-ish work overseas. It's a PMC, a private military company. It's an independent corporation that provides armed combat or security services for financial gain. PMCs refer to their staff as security contractors or private military contractors. Private military companies refer to their business generally as the private military industry or as the circuit. The services and expertise offered by PMCs typically similar to those of governmental security, mil uh, military, or police forces, most often on a smaller scale. They provide services like combat operations, strategic planning, intelligence gathering, risk assessment, operations support, combat training, and other technical skills. And the services of private contractors are used around the world. P.W. Singer, 
author of Corporate Warriors, The Rise of the Privatized Military Industry, says in geographic terms, it operates in over 50 countries. It's operated in every single continent but Antarctica. It's a growing industry. In the 1990s, there used to be 50 military personnel for every one contractor. In recent years, the ratio estimated to be 10 to 1. And in active war zones from 2009 to 2016, the ratio of contractors to troops increased from 1 to 1 to 3 to 1. Then in 2019, there were 53,000 U.S. contractors working for the Pentagon in the Middle East, 50% more than the 35,000 U.S. troops stationed in the Middle East that they were there to support. So that's pretty fucking wild. More contractors now than soldiers or Marines in U.S. active military operations in the Middle East did not expect those numbers. And these contractors are not just working as soldiers or as security, whatever you want to call it. Also, according to a 2008 study by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, private contractors made up 29% of the workforce in the U.S. intelligence community and cost the equivalent of 49% of their personnel personnel budgets. Again, surprised by those numbers. This is a big, big business. Uh, Let's briefly dig into the history of PMCs in modern times, in the modern world, to establish how this industry was built. Modern PMCs, this is shocking, uh, can trace their origins back to Michael Landon. I don't know if you recognize that name. Uh, I definitely remember him growing up. Michael Landon, an actor best known for playing Little Joe in Bonanza, and then the dad, Charles Ingalls, in the Little House on the Prairie TV series. Uh, And of course, Jonathan Smith in the Unforgettable Highway to Heaven series. And long before Landon was an actor, he worked for the U.S. military, first as a sniper in the Korean War, then as a CIA-trained assassin in Central and South America. Landon was credited with 73 kills in Korea. And while the real info is classified, rumored to have killed over 500 people between 1960 and 1968 in Central, South America, Southeast Asia. Uh, He also starred in Bonanza most of those years, which provided an amazing cover for what he was really doing. Uh, He was, uh, you know, a highly trained killer, but most people thought he was just, you know, Little Joe. I'm going to get on my horse and I'm going to ride out of here. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't want any trouble. Okay, little Joe doesn't want trouble. But he will respond don't to it. Don't try it. Don't try it, buddy. You don't know who you're messing you with. raise that gun, I'm gonna have to kill you. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it, buddy. You have no idea. Oh, God! And hold it! Mm-hmm. Little Joe, you know, actually was a killer on screen, too. Probably could have played a, a better role for that particular cover. Uh, Little Joe, at the beginning of the Vietnam conflict, Vietnam, I got, uh, built up the PMC, the first big American one, Ronin Incorporated. And he and his band of expendables fought primarily in Southeast Asia during even following America's involvement in Vietnam. Uh, Little House in the Prairie would give him, you know, great cover for most of those years. One day he's carrying out an assassination attempt in Burma. Two days later, he's on set, you know, just playing a good dad. But you only said you were sorry we didn't have a good watchdog anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes people say things they don't mean. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't find the words to say it was in my heart, half pint. Oh, half pint. Oh. Hmm. Hugging, embracing, good dad. Oh, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> they love each other. Sometimes people say the things they don't mean, half pint. You know what? And sometimes people have to kill motherfuckers in the jungle to stop the red spread. You know why you're fucking safe on the prairie half pint? You know why you can sleep peacefully at night? Because I'm the motherfucker willing to do what the next motherfucker won't. You feel me, half pint? You fucking feel me? I'm done with my Michael Landon bullshit now. 
<laughs> Did anyone still think that was true by the end? Come on. One, one person, maybe? The dad on Little House in the Prairie? Little Joe in Bonanza was secretly a CIA-trained assassin? What's wrong with me? I'm going to keep my shit together for a while again now. Not forever. Definitely not forever, but for a little while. Allow me to reset. Now, for real. <laughs> thinking about what my neighbors are thinking right now. Let's briefly dig into the history of PMCs in the modern world to establish how this industry was built. Uh, modern PMCs can... I'm probably the only one that finds that that funny. I just love thinking about Michael Landon running a PMC. Uh, modern PMCs can trace their origins back to a group of British ex-Special Air Services veterans. The SAS, being British, being British Special Forces, uh, who in 1965, under the leadership of the founder of the SAS, Sir David Sterling, and also under the leadership of SAS vet John Woodhouse, founded WatchGuard International as a private company that could and would be contracted out for security and military purposes. Sterling was afraid that Britain was losing its influence in the world after World War II and wanted to do something about it. And uh, paraphrase, Liam motherfucking Neeson and Taken, Sterling had a very particular set of skills, skills he'd acquired over a very long career, skills that made him a nightmare for whoever he was facing in a military contract, conflict. And he wanted to get paid, wanted to make that money using those skills. So WatchGuard International, precursor to Blackwater, was formed. Uh, years after founding WatchGuard, Sterling would leave that company and found another PMC, KAS International. And Sterling's employees would participate in numerous military conflicts, primarily in the Middle East and Africa. He'd also help broker arms deals between British arms manufacturers and foreign armies. Following some of the success that David Sterling and John Woodhouse saw, more PMCs popped up with PMCs growing in number and size dramatically thanks to the Cold War as Western governments increasingly began to rely on their services to bolster falling conventional military budgets. Money, you know, part of the reason for this increasing reliance. It's hard to paint a proper financial picture for all of this since some of the information needed to do so is classified, but I'm still going to take a shot and I think we'll be able to clearly understand the financial incentive to use these companies here. Think about this in the U.S. here. The United States Undersecretary of Defense, Robert Hale, stated back in 2012 that the annual cost for one military personnel in Afghanistan was uh, over $800,000 per troop. That number projected to almost double in the near future. This is back in 2012. And holy shit, was he right? That figure would more than double very quickly. Back in 2014, it then cost uh, the, an average of $2.1 million for every U.S. troop serving in Afghanistan, according to a report from the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. I can't find more recent per troop costs that I trust, but there's no fucking way that number has gone down. That's just not how things work. Uh, it more than doubled in roughly two years. How much has it gone up in the past seven? Plus, in addition to the cost of sending troops overseas, there is the enormous cost of maintaining a standing army. As of 2014, the U.S. military spent $99,000 per soldier per year. And to be clear, soldiers don't see all that money. Fuck no, not even close. But that's how much it costs taxpayers per soldier. More on how much soldiers are actually paid versus private military contractors a bit later. So how much do private military contracts cost? That info was a little harder to track down. Here's the best estimate I could find. Back in February of 2019, it would cost anywhere from $500,000 to $1.5 million uh, per contractor per year, depending obviously on the contract, right, to field these private contractors. Really expensive, but still a lot cheaper than $2.1 million per soldier back in uh, 2014 prices. And when these contractors aren't working overseas, you don't have to pay them anything. You don't have to pay to maintain a standing army. There's a huge savings in that. The financial incentive to hire PMCs is uh, made abundantly clear 
through those numbers. While you'll still need an active military for shit like firing ballistics missiles, uh, you know, um, having super expensive military equipment like aircraft carriers, you know, a fleet of fighter jets, bombers, a uh, squadron of tanks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you only need some extra manpower, uh, a squadron of, you know, uh, maybe some choppers, armored vehicles, other equipment at that level, it appears as if it is much cheaper to use contractors. And then there are the enormous political advantages of using PMCs. So much of politics is about how you can spin information and optics. PMCs provide great optics. When a politician, say a president, uses PMCs for international conflict, they can tell the voting public, for example, if the conflict is becoming politically unfavorable to still be in, but diplomatically they still need to be involved. They can tell the public that they're scaling back and that they are bringing the troops home. And then they can do that, but not really do that. In this scenario, they could replace troops with contractors and therefore simultaneously, truthfully, you know, kind of tell the public they're bringing troops home while actually not de-escalating the U.S. military presence in the conflict at all. They could actually do the opposite. They could, they could escalate it. Pretty convenient loophole there. And maybe even more politically advantageous, they can pass along much lower casualty numbers to the media. Since when the media reports U.S. military casualties, they are often not reporting contractor deaths and injuries. So again, for political optics, using PMCs can be fucking awesome. There are, there are also negatives, such as when scandals arise or when a PMC commits some act that is not good for optics. Uh, we'll get into some of that in the timeline. But even then, a politician can throw the PMC under the bus and still keep their hands clean. Right? Oh, what? They, they did what? Oh, man. Well, they're out. They're fired now, you know? Uh, and this is exactly what Eric Prince claims the U.S. government did to Blackwater. Uh, years after Sir David Sterling and co. showed that PMCs could be profitable and politically favorable, in the aftermath of all that Eastern Bloc slash end of the Soviet Union slash 1990s governmental reshuffling, when a huge number of discharged soldiers suddenly appeared on the marketplace, when a lot of former Soviet arms dealers showed up with a, a lot of big inventories uh, where PMCs could suddenly afford to buy and use a variety of international, you know, uh, or, or buy and use a bunch of weapons and a variety of international armed conflicts, the timing was then right for the rise of a lot of PMCs. And with the relative powerlessness of the UN, the United Nations, to act in many of these conflicts that were springing up uh, all around the world, Blackwater founder Eric Prince specifically was inspired largely by the lack of international military intervention in the Rwandan genocide. Uh, PMCs started getting bolder proposals to step into a variety of new armed conflicts. And it was a lot of words, right? Makes sense. Uh, this all goes back again to optics. Some governmental leader might face a lot of political backlash for sending in their quote unquote, soldiers to a dangerous international conflict. But they found they could send in PMCs and not receive the same backlash and, you know, get some uh, good diplomacy out of that. Maybe, you know, help an ally kind of under the table, not get a lot of eyeballs on it necessarily, not the same way. And thanks to a never ending stream of international conflicts in recent decades, the U.S. has become involved in conflicts the public wouldn't necessarily support becoming too involved in a reliance on using more and more PMCs has grown and grown and grown into this behemoth. In 2019, the Pentagon spent $370 billion on contracting, more than half the total budget of $676 billion and a whopping 164% higher than it spent on contractors back in 2001. All right, now let's look at a few of the PMCs getting some of this money. Uh, Michael Landon's Ronin Incorporated, just one of the PMCs getting a bunch of that security money. Come on, give me the gun, darling. Mm -hmm. Give him the gun. You just want to save your necks. No, he doesn't. Yours and Haas. 
Believe him, lady. Yeah, that's right. I want to save our necks. And I want to save your neck, too. Mm-hmm. I don't believe you. Believe him! Ronin Incorporated is in the business of saving necks by any means fucking necessary. Come on! Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, now that's more like it. You're, you're damn right, little Joe. I'm back again. Uh, real PMCs to talk about now. Blackwater slash Academy. Just one of the many, many PMCs getting some of those billions and billions. Uh, Academy, a huge military company that specializes in orders for military operations and escorts. Academy's revenue for 2018, uh, $40.8 million, much lower than it was getting back uh, over a decade ago during the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. Uh, those were the most profitable Blackwater slash Academy years by far. I'll share that data in today's timeline. Uh, Academy has many different divisions that provide different services. In particular, uh, subsidiaries like Blackwater Maritime Solutions train naval special forces. Blackwater Maritime Solutions prepares them for service in countries like Afghanistan, uh, Azerbaijan, Greece. Uh, they also provide protection for diplomats in Afghanistan, Israel, Iraq, Bosnia, Aviation Worldwide Services, which has three subsidiaries that mainly repair and maintain aircraft bought by Blackwater in 2003. Aviation Worldwide Services collaborates with the U.S. military and has at its disposal, at its disposal several MD-530 uh, helicopters, as well as CASA-212, several Boeing 767s uh, used in the Iraq War. Aviation Worldwide Services uh, also engaged in cargo transport in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan. And again, this is just a small part of Academy slash Blackwater. Do a lot of shit. Academy also includes Blackwater airships, the Raven Development Group, many others. These subsidiaries do everything from constructing armored vehicles to developing drones to training law enforcement officers, canine dogs for service, and much more. The center of Academy's operations, its brain, so to speak, is Z-Watch. Z-Watch monitors the activities of all the corporate units. At one point, Academy was formerly known as Z-Services before changing their name again to Academy. Uh, Z-Watch also collects info about military conflicts, arms smuggling, and various other data. The official press release for Academy says that the organization provides logistical support as well as humanitarian support. In addition, the release says Academy staff help in establishing law and order in disaster areas. Uh, Blackwater was contracted in Hurricane Katrina relief efforts to save survivors and protect residents from lawlessness. I'll speak to that a little bit more later. Uh, Academy is one of the five companies that have been selected by the U.S. government to supply equipment and provide services to combat drug trafficking. And Academy, a.k.a. Blackwater, far from the only company to be paid by the U.S. government to head to the Middle East. Back in 1997, when there was a lot more U.S. involvement in the Middle East than there is now, PMC DynCorp was employing 24,000 people and getting $2.4 billion in annual contracts. DynCorp was involved in all sorts of shit, testing missile technology for the U.S. military, uh, developing vaccines, installing security systems in American embassies, and on and on and on. DynCorp received governmental contracts in the field of information technology as well. In 2003, about 50% of the company's business comprised IT services for the FBI and the CIA. In 2018, DynCorp made over $3.4 billion, employing more than 10,000 people and working in areas like uh, air operations, rehabilitation and development, maintenance and operation, intelligence training, and military security services. Uh, the corporation with the single largest presence in Iraq in the first decade of this century was KBR, which was the Halliburton Corporation subsidiary Kellogg, Brown, and Root until early 2007. KBR provided logistical support to U.S. and Iraqi troops, held the single biggest contract in Iraq, employing nearly 14,000 U.S. workers. 
Other large U.S. PMCs are the Fort Defense Group Corporation, a.k.a. FDG Corp., MPRI, Northbridge Services Group, and many others. And the U.K., where this all started, still has some of the largest PMCs in the world, like G4S, which currently employs well over half a million people and specializes in multinational security. They're one of the biggest private companies in the world. Uh, PMCs are big, big global business. According to some estimates, the global private security services market will register a revenue of more than $257 billion by next year in 2022. So who do PMCs employ and how much can a security contractor make? According to analyzed information from iCasualties.org, PMC contractors are predominantly white men, 86.4%, white men in their 40s specifically, who have chosen contracting as a second career. Most are veterans with significant military experience. Only about 1.3% are female, compared to about 16.8% of females in the military. Among those veteran contractors, many are former officers, and about half are special forces veterans. They're more likely to have a college degree than their active duty counterparts, but less likely than their fellow veterans in the general population to have that degree. So how much does a typical private military contractor make compared to their active duty military counterpart? Uh, Reliable and detailed stats are hard to find, mostly because many private military contractors work for the CIA and all aspects of their agreements are confidential. Uh, It seems based on a variety of articles and firsthand accounts shared by former military and private contractors that most earn anywhere between $300 and $750 a day or between $9,000 and $22,500 per month. I've heard as low as $200 a day and I've heard as high as well over $1,000 a day. All depends on the company and the contractor. The median amount seems to be somewhere around $500 a day. And that's every day for the length of the contract. You know, it's not like five days on, two days off out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, It seems uh, like it's going to be, you know, your your day rate the entire length of your contract while you're overseas. Housing and meals seem to be uh, compensated generally. For a 30-day month, that's $15,000. And because of overseas IRS tax exemptions, most of that can be free, tax-free, sorry, not free, tax-free. Compare that to the 2020 active duty Marine pay scale. A non-commissioned officer, E4 ranking, with less than two years of service, $2,262 per month. A staff non-commissioned officer, E9 ranking, with 10 years of service, $5,472 per month. An 08 major general, $11,000. It's like 50 cents less than $11,000 per month. Like with private contractors, those numbers don't include housing and meals, a portion or all of which are paid you know, for depending on whether or not someone is on or off base or domestic or overseas. So the difference is pretty fucking clear. An average PMC security officer can make more, a lot more than an active duty Marine major general. And think about the soldier or Marine who retires after 20 years of active service, someone probably in their late 30s or early to mid 40s who is now collecting a pension, uh, has health insurance. Now they can go make 15K a month or sometimes much more on top of all this using skills they've spent two decades honing. A lot of incentive to do this. So just what does the job for the average security contractor entail? In a word, danger. A lot of danger. Between 2001 2020, an estimated 8,000 contractors for U.S. companies died on duty in the Middle East. That figure, 1,000 more than the number of U.S. troops killed in the same period. A study of U.S. contractors working in Iraq found that they were more likely to be killed by enemy action than the American service members they worked alongside. Contractors apparently often lack the same protection and support from other units as their active duty counterparts. When they encounter unexpected threats, often less likely that backup support can arrive in time to mount an organized and effective response. 
Uh, the types of missions they carry out, for example, driving supply trucks to and from base seem to be inherently more dangerous than a lot of their active military counterparts missions, less protected, have routines, uh, routes that can be detected by an enemy. Also should point this out, most contractors working for US PMCs aren't US citizens or even Westerners. A third of them in the Middle East are foreign nationals. Many of the 8,000 contractors I referenced being killed earlier were foreign nationals. Uh, many others, veterans from other countries, not the U.S., you know, Peru, Colombia, Fiji, Uganda. The PMC industry employs former ch child soldiers from Sierra Leone, uh, ex-guerrilla fighters from the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, Colombia's largest rebel group. Whoever can do the job doesn't have to be former U.S. military, often is not. And what is the job? The job duties of a military contractor may include conducting counter-drug operations, fighting terrorism, protecting oil rigs, guarding political dignitaries, pinching sassy bottoms, training security personnel and police forces, developing security plans for private organizations, providing operational and intelligence support, conducting uh, intelligence analysis, carrying out Illuminati Agenda 21 depopulation objectives, assisting in drone missions, organizing foreign armies, defeating rebel forces. I know many of those descriptions are pretty vague, and two of those were obviously fake. Uh, the job can entail a lot of different responsibilities. Now that we have our heads around the basics of PMCs, let's meet Eric Prince, then jump back or jump back, jump in to uh, a Blackwater timeline. And then I'll share more info on PMCs and thoughts, you know, my thoughts on all this uh, at the end. Eric Prince, the former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, founder of Blackwater, a divisive figure, just as controversial as the company he founded. Speaking in broad strokes, it appears digging into the comment sections of various videos of him being interviewed uh, on the web. Some people really, really fucking hate this guy. They feel he's an evil war profiteer, a murderous monster. Many others think he's either at worst a necessary evil or at best a really great dude, a true patriot willing to do whatever dirty work needs to be done to defeat tyranny around the globe. A guy who understands that war is both unavoidable and ugly and that there's nothing wrong with getting paid and paid well for doing some really dangerous work. Uh, politically, he's become a very divisive figure. Let me at least address a current scandal uh, the, his name is mentioned in. So those of you familiar with it, don't think I just skipped over it. Uh, have you heard of Project Veritas? Uh, here's how the founders of this organization describe themselves on the about section of their website. James O'Keefe established Project Veritas in 2011 as a nonprofit journalism enterprise to continue his undercover reporting work. Today, Project Veritas investigates and exposes corruption, dishonesty, self-dealing, waste, fraud, and other misconduct in both public and private institutions to achieve a more ethical and transparent society. Sounds pretty good at first glance. Who would be against exposing corruption? Uh, in this instance, Project Veritas focuses, or at least is accused of focusing, only on exposing corruption on the left, and they've been accused of breaking the law to do so. How does Eric Prince fit into this? Prince leans pretty heavily, you know, right of center between 1998 and 2007, donated more than $200,000 to Republican and third-party causes. In 2016, Prince contributed 250 grand to Donald Trump's presidential campaign and 100 grand to make America number one a Trump-aligned super PAC. So what's the problem? I mean, donate to whoever you fucking want to, right? That is your right as an American citizen. The problem for some is that Prince is accused of using his private military force and CIA surveillance techniques to illegally further the campaigns he donated to. Uh, numerous media outlets began reporting in October of 2020 and continued to report that they believe Prince recruited former American and British spies for secretive intelligence gathering operations, operations that included infiltrating Democratic congressional campaigns, labor unions, 
uh, and other groups considered hostile to Trump's reelection campaign. The allegations center around operations launched by Project Veritas that used hidden cameras and microphones for sting operations on liberal-leaning organizations. And Prince may have been using former spies to train Project Veritas operatives in espionage tactics going back to the 2016 presidential campaign. Reaching out to several intelligence veterans, Prince is alleged to have said he wanted the Project Veritas employees to learn skills like how to recruit sources, how to conduct clandestine recordings, among other surveillance techniques. And to these allegations, I gotta say, if all of this was illegal, fine. Charge him if you have the evidence. But if not, if the problem is just that he's a conservative who wanted to gather intel on liberals to help his side win elections, then I'm not bothered by what he did. Getting dirt on rivals? Come on. Who doesn't want to do that? That shit's been going on since the dawn of politics by conservatives and liberals and everyone in between. That's how the game's played. If you're liberal and mad about what Prince may have done, would you still be mad if a Democratic group was doing the same thing to conservatives? Would you be mad if some former spy unearthed you know, dirt on Trump uh, through either maybe legal or even illegal trickery? Would you be outraged? Or would you just be happy to have the corruption exposed? Personally, if I was in direct competition with someone and I truly believed that the country would be worse off if they won and that I would also be much better off if I won, and then some prince dude approached me and was like, hey, hey, uh, we think so-and-so uh, bribed this Yahoo or had an affair with so-and-so or snorted coke off an underage girl's ass with Jeffrey Epstein on an island back in 2012. And we'd like to set up a secret camera, send in some spies, uh, get them to admit that on tape, and then release that tape to fucking everyone. But this is this is kind of illegal. Do you, do you, do you still want in? Fuck, fuck yeah, bro. Are you kidding me? You had me at Epstein. Get that tape. Green light. Let's burn it all down. I mean, come on. You wouldn't? Almost all the outlets who have really honed in on Project Veritas seem to be very liberal outlets. It seems like people are less mad about what may have happened than they are about liberals being the target of spying by conservatives. I could be wrong. It's a story that's still developing. I only include it today because it's been in the news a lot and because I think it points to a lot of people's fears regarding PMCs. If private military operatives are being paid to gather intelligence on American citizens, a military-esque operation, could a PMC be tasked with carrying out other military operations on American citizens? like arresting them, detaining, killing them. That's worst case scenario for a PMC, that it could be used to turn on the citizens of its own nation. Actually, worst case scenario is that it turns on its own nation with a fighting force stronger than said nation's military. Hypothetically, a PMC could be awarded so many contracts by a government that it ends up having more security contractors on the payroll than the nation awarding those contracts actually has fucking soldiers, active military personnel. In that scenario, wouldn't the head of that company in a way be more powerful than the political leader of the nation they worked for? You know, what if they then turned against that nation? What if contractors had to choose between listening to their boss or listening to their head of state? That's a scary thing to think about, especially considering guerrilla guerrilla military forces have overthrown governments time and time again in various coups around the world. All right, recent Eric Prince headlines addressed. Let's dig in, learn about his life, where he came from, and the name-changing company he created in this week's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour, but 
What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. 
Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening, Meat Sacks. Thanks for listening so we can continue to have sponsors. Timeline Engage. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. In 1965, the Prince Corporation is founded in Holland inside a windmill by wooden shoe-wearing execs who then celebrate by knocking back some Heinekens and smoking so much weed and then riding their bicycles to a brothel in Amsterdam's red light district. Uh, no, wait, uh, wrong Holland. No, 1965, the Prince Corporation is founded in Holland, Michigan, commonly known as the less fun Holland by Edgar Prince, father of future Blackwater CEO, Eric Prince. Edgar Prince was an engineer, developer, industrialist, who become very wealthy in an industry generally not known for a high degree of profitability, auto parts manufacturing. But he got the right clients, made and sold them the right product, worked his ass off to make a lot of money. Edgar married Elsa Zweep. Oh, Zweep. That's not, that's not the best name. That's okay. You know, if you have it, that's fine. Uh, oh, Elsa Zweep. Mrs. Ms. Zweep. And together they had four children, three daughters and a son, Eric. Their daughters are Elizabeth. You might know her as Betsy DeVos a former secretary of education under the Trump administration. And I know she's a very politically divisive person, but Betsy's story is not relevant to telling the uh, story of Blackwater. So I'm just going to go ahead and save myself some emails and step over that landmine. Uh, If you don't know, Betsy is married to Richard Marvin Dick uh, DeVos Jr. Oh, Dick Jr. That's great. A multi-billionaire heir to the Amway fortune who ran Amway's parent company, Altacore from 1993 to 2002. Betsy and Dick Jr. bowing down and praying to the good God Amway, maker of fine and affordable self-care products like the new Artistry Signature Select Brightening Body Cream. Nexium cult. Uh, suck call back there if you're very confused right now. Edgar and Elsa's other daughters, Eric's sisters, Eileen and Emily, not really in the public eye. Edgar Prince, born in Holland, Michigan, 1931. Edgar's father was Peter Prince owner of a produce company that supplied stores in the Western Michigan area, including Holland and Grand Rapids. The produce company was called the Tulip City Produce Company. Uh, Eric Prince, entrepreneurship in his blood. And it's good to talk about his dad a little bit here to show where he comes from. It's, uh, I think it's relevant. As a child, Edgar accompanied his father, Peter, on his daily delivery route. Edgar's mother, Edith, was a seamstress. When Peter suddenly died of a heart attack in 1943, Edgar became the man of the house. Eric would later would later write that his young father sought no government handouts, no charity from the church, not even money from family. Edgar, who had two sisters, was the man of the house now. He would provide for them. He was 12. Very proud of his dad. 12-year-old Edgar's first job was for a local painter. He was paid a few cents an hour to scrape and sand houses. Man, if only you could support a family of several people uh, painting right now. Uh, when he was 13, he took a job at the local Chrysler, Chrysler Plymouth dealership. They paid him 40 cents an hour. He'd learn a lot about cars there, how to take them apart, how to diagnose problems, how to sell them. This knowledge would eventually make him a fortune. By the age of 16, Edgar was running the dealership, 
when the owner was away. He saved enough money to put himself through college. Hard-working kid, grandson of immigrants, classic American success story shaping up here. Edgar was an engineering major at Michigan Technological University, where he earned a Reserve Officers Training Corps ROTC scholarship. He served two years as an Air Force photo reconnaissance officer at bases in South Carolina and Colorado. Then he returned to Holland, the boring one. After his service, uh, took a job as a diecaster at the local bus machine works, working his way up to chief engineer. Following graduation, he met his future wife back in his mother country, Holland, the fun one, where he had a lot of family, local school teacher named Elsa Zweep. Old sexy old Zweep. 1965, Edgar Prince and two of his fellow bus machine works colleagues founded their own machine manufacturing firm. Edgar did this by remortgaging his house and borrowing $10,000 from his mom. Took a big gamble on himself. I love it. Edgar was convinced that nearby manufacturers would soon need a service his firm could and would provide, die casting. Now, what is die casting? It's how you level up in Dungeons and Dragons, you silly goose. You want to defeat the chaotically evil Demigorgon? Well, you got to roll those attack die, baby. And you have to roll them well. It has a natural armor class of 15. Stop fucking around. Did I mention regeneration abilities? <laughs> Pull your head out of your ass and listen up, paladin. The Demigorgon regains 10 hit points at the start of each and every turn. And you better have some hot defensive die casting. That big fucker's going to throw down nothing but triple melee attacks. One with his bite, two with his claws. Those claws, two die eight, plus three, piercing damage each. Hope your hit points are up, dickweed. This isn't some bullshit giant fire beetle you're facing. Grow up! This is the Prince of Demons. Sorry. That was actually the wrong kind of die casting. Unfortunately, for storytelling purposes, Prince's family has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Die casting in the less exciting manufacturer, uh, manufacturing world is an efficient way to mass produce a wide variety of engineered metal parts. It's typically, uh, they use uh, high pressure to force molten metal into mold cavities or dyes where the metal cools and hardens into its final form. Usually, manufacturers use metals like zinc, aluminum, lead, copper, or tin. There's no demigorgons, you know. Edgar claimed he'd gotten the idea to go into die casting while taking Elsa to the opera. During their date nights at the opera Grand Rapids, or, you know, the opera in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Edgar was often so bored that he spent the entire time pondering new ideas for die casting machines. And I love it. And I can relate. Opera's not really my thing either. I went once when I was younger. I respect the talent it takes to do it, just like I do with figure skating and, you know, the orchestra. But it just doesn't really speak to me. And I end up just doing a lot of expensive daydreaming if I buy a ticket to a show like that. And between clapping, when I hear everyone else clap, I don't even know why people are clapping. I just zone out and think about, you know, something generally related to work. Uh, when Edgar got the idea, he took it to his workshop where a staff of six worked around the clock to construct some 600 ton die casting machines. He went all in. He was right about there being a lot of demand for what he was building. Just a few months after its founding, Prince uh, filled its first order for Honeywell International which needed a pair of these die-casting machines to manufacture military ordnance. So, uh, ordnance. There we go. There's not an I in there. Soon Honeywell returned for three more machines, then 15 more. Then General Motors started buying them, manufacturing each of its new engine blocks with Prince machines. By 1973, when young Eric was a toddler of four or so, the Prince company employed hundreds of employees in its several divisions selling all kinds of shit. Edgar's gamble paid off big time. They're making a lot of money. Edgar Prince quickly became one of the wealthiest men in Michigan, and I say, good for him. He worked hard as a kid, learned a valuable trade because of his understanding of that trade, because of the reflective time he spent creating a vision to see what would soon be needed. He saw a need he felt he could fill, and then he bet his ass on putting his money where his mind was and being able to fulfill that need better than the next meat sack, and he did exactly that. And in the process of making himself rich, he increased the U.S. GDP, 
pushed the manufacturing industry forward and gave a lot of people really good jobs. Uh, the Prince company expanded, making new products with their own die cast machines, namely auto parts. And then as early as the 1970s, Edgar Prince began to worry about his longevity, considering the early death of his father, who died at the age of only 36. In 1972, a heart attack almost killed Edgar when he was 42. After that heart attack, Edgar became much more religious, much more health conscious. He became a serious exerciser, tried to avoid the effects of too much stress. Even decided to get his employees involved in exercise, and he built an extensive facility for use by his employees as part of, at their company's headquarters. Uh, by 1980, Prince Manufacturing had several plants, over 550 employees, rising to 1,500 employees in 1987. And then despite his health-related efforts, Edgar would die young at only 63. So he did a lot better than his dad. Uh, he achieved a great deal over the course of his life. His candle may have not have burned the longest, but it seems to have burned real bright. Little more on Edgar, uh, even though he just passed away in our timeline. Just like how a lot of people find Blackwater controversial and Eric Prince controversial, uh, a lot of people also find his dad, Edgar, controversial. A lot of people not big fans. Why not? Primarily because of his involvement, and then Eric Prince would also become involved in this, in the Family Research Council. The Family Research Council is a fundamentalist Christian organization that, with the help of a lot of money from the Prince family, has published a lot of panned research, quote-unquote, I put the quotes around research about the LGBT community based on heavily discredited beliefs about homosexuality. The Family Research Council argues that homosexuality is a type of perversion that's definitely a choice. In 1999, an FRC staffer wrote, gaining access to children has been a long-term goal of the homosexual movement. So that's, you know, pretty fucking troubling to uh, assert that homosexuality is akin to pedophilia. This is very ignorant. Uh, people should be pissed about derogatory slander like that or that they're trying to like, you know, even if they're not trying to, with that assertion, say that they're, you know, like like pedophiles are saying, oh, they're trying to turn the kids gay. Uh, there's no homosexual movement, <laughs> just like there is no heterosexual movement, right? Like, like that's just such a weird thought that all the homosexuals, they get together and they fucking plan their movement and the heterosexuals get together and what plan their movement. If there is a heterosexual movement, uh, I'm not getting my invites. Where are my invites for the heterosexual men meetings? Uh, Bojangles, are you eating some of my mail? What's going on here? What would go on at one of those meetings? Tell <laughs> like a heterosexual men's meeting. Thank you for attending uh, another heterosexual movement men's chapter meeting, gentlemen. I'm your chairman, Dale Mufflover. And today's topic is the same topic we discuss at all previous meetings. Pussy. We love it. Do we not? How do we access more of it? How many different ways can we get it? Mustache rides, Dale? Excellent contribution, Jimmy. Yes, offering free mustache rides is an excellent way to access pussy. Uh, hitting it from behind, Dale. Excellent suggestion, Jamal. Yes, hitting it from behind is a great way to enjoy pussy. Uh, double penetration, Dale? Excellent suggestion, Pedro. Tag teaming is a great way. Wait! Wait, wait, wait. Double penetration involves two different dicks inside the same woman at the same time, does it not? Oh, God. That means that two naked dudes are involved in the same sexual situation, which means those two dicks can and probably will touch, which is pretty gay, Pedro. Get out. Even banished from the heterosexual movement. Your devil's triangle loving traitor. Is there a homosexual movement trying to gay up the youth? Or are there numerous scientific studies pointing to sexuality not being binary, but rather existing on a continuum with extreme heterosexuality on one end, extreme homosexuality on the other end, and we're all living somewhere in the middle just looking for some love? Uh, moving along to Eric Prince now. Eric Prince is born on June 6, 1969 in Holland, Michigan. 
the youngest of four prince children. His upbringing, one of high living and heavy religion. He was raised to value hard work, entrepreneurship, justice, and to keep his eyes peeled for the homosexual agenda. 1973, Prince Corporation begins marketing a lighted sun visor to car companies. This little product, manufactured by the millions, nets the company so much money. Billions of dollars over the years. uh, Paving the way for Eric's cushy upbringing. I love shit like this. Make the right product, right? Create the right patent. Your bank account just keeps going up and up and up like a kid setting new high scores on an arcade game. Uh, Eric grows up raised by people who not only make a lot of money, but use that money to further their own ideologies. Erica's mother, Elsa Prince, another polarizing Prince family figure. Uh, She's been one of the biggest contributors to campaigns to ban same-sex marriage in the country, in the U.S., working against the civil rights issue in California, Michigan, and elsewhere. Uh, What's more, it's alleged that both Edgar and Elsa Prince have advanced this cause of theirs using what many have called backhanded tactics. For instance, the Prince Foundation has tried to evade lobbying restrictions by reclassifying their lobbying efforts as prayer warrior networks. In other words, the princes, you know, have claimed that they they just ask politicians to pray for particular policies as opposed to actually lobbying policymakers for those policies. And because they're asking politicians to pray, the same lobbying restrictions don't apply, even when they are for sure lobbying. So, you know, finding loopholes, uh, something else ambitious people have been doing since the dawn of civilization. I don't love it, but I get it. I can see myself doing the same thing to advance my own agenda. Uh, I wonder what kind of prayers they were praying regarding banning same-sex marriage. I uh, had way too much fun thinking about this. I want to I play some music for this one, and then we'll get on to back to military stuff. Dear Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, please pass U.S. legislation forbidding one man getting married to another man and thereby destroying the sanctity of marriage when the first man sticks his penis into the second husband man's beehole in the house they both own together, legally in defiance of your will. And dear righteous Lord, please do not let that first man within the confines of illegal marriage put the second husband man's balls in his mouth and stroke the second man's penis with his right hand while simultaneously sticking the middle finger of his left hand in the same husband man's behold. And dear Lord, omnipotent King of Kings, please, with an illegal marriage as defined for tax purposes, do not allow the first sodomite to set that second sodomite in a sex swing face up, gently but firmly elevating his hips, and place the second man's legs over his shoulders, both men staring passionately into one another's eyes, while the first sodomite rhythmically thrusts his penis into the husband man's beehole, while the second sodomite jerks his own penis with his right hand, while squeezing his own balls with his left, until he climaxes and shoots his seed not into a married wife's womb, which is your divine will, O Lord God, but instead into his own belly possibly onto his chest or even face. Depending on stroke velocity and current hydration level, oh Lord God, force Congress to stop that sin in the name of you, at least in a legal manner. Amen. You get it. (laughs) Bringing this up to A, hopefully make you laugh a little bit. It's ridiculous. And B, established that Prince was raised to do everything he could to further what he considered to be right, what he considered to be the the best way to live. Do I agree with his belief in opposition to same-sex marriage? No, I I definitely do not. Do I have a problem with working the system to push an agenda that you do believe is best for all? No, I I also do not. I I may not respect the message, but I respect the hustle, the commitment to the cause. Uh, While we don't have a lot of info on who Eric was as a little kid, 
other than for a while he wanted to be a fireman. A lot of little boys do. Uh, we do have some info about Eric's high school years. Eric's high school years couldn't have been more different from his dad's. Edgar apparently insisted that Eric not get a job until he graduated, wanted to wanted him to enjoy his teenage years. Eric was on a, a basketball. Uh, he was on, sorry, not uh, the. He was on the basketball, soccer, track, and wrestling teams at Holland Christian High School. Senior year, he was on the team uh, that won the Class B soccer championship. Edgar flew in from wherever he was in the world on business to watch Eric's soccer matches that season. Eric claims that he wasn't very popular in high school. He didn't drink or smoke or party at all. While he had a social group uh, from athletics, he didn't have very, you know, few or didn't have very many close friends. So, nerd. Uh, in Eric's words, I was never sure whether people saw me as my own person or simply as the son of Holland's largest employer. That would be weird. I spent endless hours discussing politics with dad and thinking about my future. Uh, he became heavily involved with his parents in church, uh, also learned to fly, earned his private pilot's license at the age of 17. Uh, he loved history as a teen, particularly military history, and his interest in history was further engaged by old Edgar, who took him on trips to famous places in European history. Uh, the, two, the two toured the Dachau concentration camp in Germany. Uh, they uh, checked out Berlin, divided Berlin at that time, the battlefields of Normandy, many other places. And all this would live, leave quite the impression on Eric. He'd return to school from these vacations equipped with facts. He would take delight in arguing with teachers and classmates. He, he wrote, Once in class, I challenged a teacher who called then-President Ronald Reagan's Cold War military buildup a waste of taxpayer dollars. I countered by rattling off every strategic defense initiative weapon system we needed to counter various Soviet threats. I'd analyzed Reagan's Star Wars the way my classmates picked apart the University of Michigan's football roster. I wanted to battle the Soviets myself. So this dude didn't go on to form Blackwater on a whim. He put a lot of thought into global politics and military history. His grandpa once got a good feel for the auto industry before figuring out a way to offer a new, highly in-demand service within that field, and Eric will do the same thing in the military field, the U.S. military industrial complex. On July 1st, 1987, 18-year-old Eric joins the Navy. He'd been an early and avid sailor, and Edgar encouraged him to join the Navy, saying that his own time in the ROTC had helped him develop leadership qualities, and it would do the same for Eric. Edgar made it clear that Eric was expected to work hard, forge his own path. After college, Eric was not to work at Prince Corporation. He would not be getting the trust fund. Fly, baby bird, fly. I love it. On July 1st, 1987, he reported to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Almost immediately, he learned that the academy was not the right fit for him. He wasn't sure what he could learn, started to wonder whether the academy created great leaders or if great leaders just happened to enroll there uh, and endured it and then got out with a new credential. He left after three semesters and then returned to academics. He chose Hillsdale College, a liberal arts school of about 1,400 students in southern Michigan, about 25 miles north of the Ohio border. At Hillsdale, he learned about libertarian free market economics. Love it! In courses anchored in the ideologies of the Austrian School of Economics, which puts front and center long-term laissez-faire policies without government intervention. Small government guy. Uh, also, don't get don't get bent out of shape. You know, government worker meets act. I know many government jobs like law enforcement, military, firefighters, educators, et cetera, et cetera. Very needed. And I appreciate what you do. Uh, Prince was an economics major and a political science minor. He also realized his childhood dream of becoming a firefighter at this time. Uh, got to volunteer as one. Around the same time, Eric met his soon-to-be wife, Joan. He met her in January of 1989 when a friend called with extra tickets for the youth inaugural ball for incoming president George H.W. Bush. So he finds another, you know, cons conservative counterpart. He convinces a friend of a friend to bring Joan. Joan was from upstate New York near Saratoga, was studying at Penn State University. 
Eric was impressed by her smarts and intrigued that she didn't seem to know anything about him or his family. As far as she knew, he was simply an ex-midshipman, two years her junior. In 1988, Eric Prince interns at the Family Research Council we talked about earlier. Of course he does. All right, he's young. I'm sure strong family pressure to do so. In 1990, after his junior year at Hillsdale, Eric applies to be an intern at the White House, still under the administration of George H.W. Bush. Eric was slowly but steadily beefing up his political activism and donations in the tradition of his parents. A few months before his internship, he donated $15,000 to the National Republican Congressional Committee, which came from investment income from stocks his parents had bought for him. Joan was working in D.C. too, and the two spent all their free time together. And as he fell in love with her, Eric fell out of love with national politics. He'd idealistically expected to find a bastion of selfless service to the nation in D.C. Instead, he found career politicians and bureaucrats who largely only served their own interests. The rubber hit the road. The blind optimism of youth met the often cold reality of experience. He worked at the Office of Public Liaison in what was then called the Old Executive Office Building, an ornate building that houses most of the White House staff. And working there allowed Eric to run into Congressman Dana Rohrabacher. Uh, Rohrabacher had helped create the Reagan Doctrine, an aggressive military policy that publicly supported anti-communist insurgencies. Bojangles just howled and pumped his paw fist. Uh, Freedom is not the sole prerogative of a chosen few, Reagan said during a 1985 State of the Union address. Rohrabacher helped write, it is the universal right of all God's children. These words have been very inspiring to Eric. Uh, Rohrabacher offered Eric an internship. Eric jumped at the chance to learn from him, and he met Paul Behrens, another Rohrabacher staffer. Uh, Behrens, then a Marine Reserve major, who would later retire as lieutenant colonel in 2005, conducted fact-finding missions for the House International Relations Committee. He was big into foreign policy and national security, and he and Eric got along well. Eric noticed that Paul ducked out of the office every day at lunch, didn't say where he was going. Later, Eric learned he was going to mass. Paul was ultimately one of the people that got Eric into Catholicism. Uh, March of 1991, Eric and Rohrabacher staff visit Zakrib to meet with Croatian leaders as they discuss plans to break away from Yugoslavia. The next month, he accompanies Barons to Nicaragua to investigate reports of mass graves in the countryside there. The Nicaraguan Association for Human Rights believed that Daniel Ortega, a Marxist who'd come to power with his, win his militant group, Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, uh, overthrew the Nicaraguan government in 1979. And uh, they'd been murdering civilian dissenters in Managua. Prince and Barons had to shake a surveillance tail from a Sandinista and a Soviet-made Lada. 90 minutes north of town, farmers led them to a secluded rolling hillside and grim evidence of the atrocities. They found the remains of dozens of peasants who'd been bound at the wrists, shot in the head, and thrown into pits. And these images would haunt Prince. And he would think, how can I help others avoid this same fate? On April 27th, 1991, eight days after he returns from Nicaragua, Eric and Joan stand at the altar of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alexandria, Virginia. He was 21. She was 23. They were surrounded by friends and family. And then they fucking got it on! So much fucking. I don't know if they did or not. But they probably did. Uh, when his congressional internship ended soon after, Joan and Eric took their honeymoon. And this honeymoon was a nerdy military activist dream honeymoon. It was not a Hale Lucifina type honeymoon. They, they stall, started with what they called their Baltic Liberation Tour. Traveling first through Poland, gross, JK. And then they uh, went through Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. From there, they added stops in Belgrade, Sarajevo, and uh, Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, even looped across North Africa before they returned to Michigan, where Eric finished his senior year at Hillsdale. Eric was loving life in 1991. He was getting to do some firefighting, 
He was gaining all sorts of new political knowledge. He'd just taken this tour of all these, you know, uh, political hotspots, Eastern Europe. A lot of uh, military action would soon be going on. He was married to the woman of his dreams. Now he had a degree. So what was he going to do with the rest of his life? He wanted something that gave him a real purpose. In 1992, Eric Prince earns a commission in the U.S. Navy. He applied to the officer candidate school just before graduating from Hillsdale. Wanted to be a Navy SEAL. I remember wanting to do the same thing when I was younger. Right around the time I saw Charlie Sheen's 1990 film, Navy Seals. It looked awesome. And then I remembered that I just watched a movie. And I heard about what their training consisted of in real life. And I remembered how scared of drowning I was at that time. And how much I struggled to do crunches. Or even run one mile in PE. And I was like, maybe should definitely not do that. And embarrass the shit out of myself. And get sent home for being a huge crybaby. Uh, there were eight operational SEAL teams in the U.S., each comprising six platoons when Eric signed up. Within the platoons, there were 16 SEALs, two officers, one chief, and 13 enlisted men. And apparently, Charlie Sheen was not ever one of those Navy SEALs, despite playing one in a movie. I don't know why he wasn't a Navy SEAL. He seems like he would have been a great one. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I am on a drug. It's called Charlie Sheen. Um, <laughs> Fuck yeah. It, uh, it's not available because if you try it once, you will die. Your face will melt huh? off and your children will weep over your exploded body. Um, You're dealing with a Vatican assassin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean, you're wondering? Whatever, it's just a joke. God, remember how crazy he was? It was so fun. How was, how was that guy? Not really a Navy SEAL. Oh, weird. Uh, once accepted into OCS, Eric threw himself into training, swimming hours a day. SEALs had to be experts at combat, swimming, high-altitude parachuting, navigation, demolitions, a host of other skills. Uh, he didn't even attend his own graduation, reporting immediately to OCS in Newport, Rhode Island. He's like, fuck school. I got SEAL stuff to do. 16 weeks later, Joan and Eric relocated again to Coronado, California for his BUD slash S or basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training at the Naval Special Warfare Center. In total, uh, BUDS lasted six months, but it's the initial basic conditioning phase that is the stuff of legend. Timed two-mile swims, four, six, or 14-mile runs in soft sand. No, thanks and even worse feats of physical endurance. Eric would describe it as the worst workout of your life every day for seven weeks. As the Navy describes it, because of its particularly challenging requirements, many candidates began questioning their decision to come to BUDS. Yeah, I bet. I bet Charlie Sheen, though, I bet he would not have questioned his decision had he joined. Are you kidding me, this fucking Highlander? Yeah, I'm different. I just have a different constitution. I have a different brain. I have a different heart. I have a different, you know, I get tiger blood, man. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. too, smart, too smart to blink, and I cured my brain. That's happening. The run <laughs> yeah. I was on made Sinatra, Flynn, Jagger, Richards, all of them Ugh. just look like, you know, droopy-eyed, armless children. He, I, he got tiger blood, and then all the other weird shit he just said. How does, how does tiger blood not automatically make you a seal? Uh, the sixth week of Eric's training was called Hell Week, 132 straight hours of mud, cold, and pain. Trainees ran more than 200 miles, suffered through physical training for 22 hours a day. What? No, thanks. Uh, <laughs> they would get some four hours of sleep total in five and a half days. They would consume 7,000 calories a day, and that still didn't stave off weight loss. When Eric got home from Hell Week, uh, his parents sent him an interesting gift, a bronze statue of a cowboy. The artist had inscribed, it's the unwritten laws of the range. The work ethic still exists. When you sign for an outfit, you ride for their brand. True commitment takes no easy way out. I had to raise him to be tough. Eric was proud to become a Navy SEAL, as he should have been. What an honor. Uh, but Eric's time in the SEALs would be brief. 1994. Eric is deployed to Haiti as part of the package President Bill Clinton sent to oust General Raul Cedras from power. The SEALs were responsible for mapping land beaches and performing special reconnaissance. Uh, you know, his first first-hand taste of the kind of work he'd later privatize. 
On December 22nd, 1994, Joan and Eric's daughter, Sophia, is born in Virginia Beach, Virginia, one of four kids they'd have together. Then on March 2nd, 1995, a death in the family shakes things up. Edgar Prince left the executive dining room at his company's headquarters, stepped into the elevator, suffered a massive heart attack. Eric's father, hero, and best friend were gone. And now there was a question of who would take over and how that person would run Edgar's empire. Eric's mom, Elsa, calls a family meeting. Eric takes time off from search and rescue training in Fallon, Nevada. Eric would not be chosen to run the company. The family company would be sold to Johnson Controls for $1.35 billion. Nice little chunk of change. When the sale goes through the following year, that money will be split between Edgar's business partners, employee stockholders, and the family, including Eric. For now, Eric returns to his SEAL duties. In late 1995, when Yugoslavia breaks apart into warring states, Princess SEAL Team 8 deploys to Bosnia-Herzegovina. or Herzegovina. They shattered buildings. Sometimes I try and cheat on that word. I just say, I say Herza, and then I just try and say something quick. Herzegovina. Herzegovina. Uh, uh, the, the, the shattered buildings and war-torn streets were a far cry from the peaceful communities he'd once seen with his wife while on their honeymoon. They performed combat search and rescue for downed pilots, took direct action against radar sites. In May of 1996, tragedy strikes the Prince family. While pregnant with their second child, a boy they'd name Christian, Eric's wife, Joan, finds a lump in her breast. She's only 29. Eric finishes out the year with the SEALs and returns home, leaves the SEALs to care for his two young children with his wife, who is facing a cancer battle. On July 22nd, 1996, the sale of Prince Automotive to Milwaukee-based Johnson Controls for $1.35 billion goes through. The family retains Prince Machine as well as Loomer Corporation, Edgar's Real Estate Operation, and Wingspan Leasing, which leased airplanes. Eric receives a large inheritance. Don't know the exact amount, uh, but I do know that uh, he will use this opportunity to jump into business for himself. Uh, in late 1996, Eric reads and reflects on entrepreneurs are made, not born. Lloyd Shevsky's book of business advice from pioneers like Bill Gates, guy, uh, the guys behind Ben and Jerry's ice cream, it glorifies risk-taking and, defi and define conventional wisdom. And after wrapping up his year with the SEALs, Eric tells his teammates uh, he, he's, want he's wanting to build now a world-class training facility, a one-stop shop near the SEAL base in Norfolk, where special operations personnel could get the best of everything they needed. He dreamed of a facility that would draw SEALs, Virginia State Police, Marine snipers from Quantico, uh, CIA officers, SWAT teams. He wanted to encourage the ethos of the SEALs that the man was the weapon, not the technician who operates the weapon. To him, it made sense that in an era of dramatic defense spending cuts, smaller, better prepared groups would see greater action and that their training would become a high priority. Using his inheritance at the young age of 26, uh, he sets about trying to build a training facility for less than a million dollars. Eric knew that launching his own business would require a tight team of skilled personnel. And the first three people he brings on are Templeton Face Peck, a suave, smooth-talking scrounger able to get his hands on just about anything you could get. Uh, he'll arrange for supplies, equipment, sensitive information. He gets chopper pilot H.M. Howling Mad Murdoch, a man who could fly anything, a man willing to go wherever in the world there was action, no matter what the danger. And finally, Bosco Albert, B.A. Baracus. B.A. was a highly skilled mechanic and master at arms, proficient in any and all handheld weapons. They survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, mm -hmm. maybe you can hire the A-Team. Come on. Get pumped. JK, gosh dang. Come on. That wasn't the team he hired. I just set up 1983's The A-Team. 
Even if you think that's dumb, you have to admit, pretty good song. No. Perfect place to throw it in. Fuck yeah. Come on. Uh, Prince's real life A-team was Al Clark, Jim DeHart, and Kevin Vieira. <laughs> Any excuse to, to, to throw to the A-team. Uh, Al Clark was a senior weapons steel instructor in Virginia Beach in the early 90s, shared Eric's vision for this facility. Eric and Al then convinced Jim DeHart, a man who'd spent 15 years designing shooting ranges for the military to create shoot houses for their facility. He understood drafting and schematics, electrical engineering, even plumbing. Uh, Jim had phenomenal ideas and just as important could figure out how to make them into reality without blowing their budget. Ken Vieira, former SEAL who'd led numerous missions worldwide, had been Eric's training officer with Team 8, agreed to be the general manager. With the founding team selected, Eric then chose the location of their facility with a map and a compass, marking off circles with a radius of four hours driving distance from key surrounding military bases. About three months after Eric's retirement, uh, on December 26, 1996, Blackwater Lodge and Training Center Incorporated is officially opened in Delaware. Well, I'm sorry, officially incorporated in Delaware. Not quite open. In explaining Blackwater's purpose, Prince stated we are trying to do for the national security apparatus what FedEx did for the Postal Service. Now, he knew what niche he thought he could fill. The stated idea behind Blackwater was to fulfill the anticipated demand for government outsourcing of firearms and related security training. And just like there had been a need for his father's vision, there would be a need for Eric's as well. Eric and his business partners needed to be specific about the location for their facility because they wanted it to be physically and metaphorically in the middle of the intersecting organizations that made up the military industrial complex. When they connected all the dots, they ended up purchasing more than 4,000 acres in Currituck County, North Carolina, uh, outside a 10,000 person town known as Moyoc on the eastern edge of the Great Dismal Swamp. The cost of the land was $756,000. They also purchased nearly 1,000 additional acres in Camden County for $616,000, not under the uh, million dollars, you know, he's trying for, but still under 1.5 mil, which is still real cheap for that much land. Mostly because outside of a military training facility, who wants fucking swampland? I'm guessing swampland, when not protected as wetlands, always pretty cheap, right? Not a lot of townhouses, condos, or commercial developments uh, being built in swamp. Not a lot of prospective investors looking for some of that swamp. You know what they say about real estate? Location, location, location. We are really hoping to buy some swamp. We did some research and there are no Starbucks in any of America's swamps. And we think there's a lot of money to be made in Starbucks and swamps, or <laughs> if you will, swamp bucks. <laughs> I'll show myself up. Uh, the idea for the original Blackwater location was essentially to create a cross between a shooting range and a country club for special forces personnel. Clients would be able to schedule all manner of training course in advance and the gear and support personnel would be waiting when they arrived. Uh, they'd be, there'd be seven shooting ranges with high gravel berms to cut down noise and absorb bullets, as well as a grass airstrip, special driving track to practice high-speed chases and defensive driving, stuff that happens when someone's convoy is ambushed. Uh, a bunkhouse would sleep 70. Nearby, the main headquarters would have the feel of a hunting lodge with timber framing and high stone walls where people could, you know, um, uh, have a long day as they construct, as they started construction, the group found themselves slogging through charcoal colored mud. Each new hole they dug was swallowed by swampy dark water. Now let's talk about speed of dark water, how black water got its name while building their training facility in the swamp. Prince and others, I guess were putting on the 1974 Doobie brothers, classic album. What were once vices are now habits on repeat. And two of the tracks on that album would be number one singles, including the track that would give them their name, Blackwater. Blackwater, keep rolling uh -huh. on fast, just the Great track. 
Old black water. Keep on rolling. Old black water. Uh huh. They just keep saying it. They heard it. Old black water. Uh huh. Would you keep on shining on me? Oh, come on. That's a fun one. Remember that one part of the song where everybody gets together for that big harmony piece? I'd like to hear some funky Dixieland. Pretty mama, come and take me by the hand. By the hand, and take me by the hand. Pretty mama, dance with your daddy all night long. I'd like to hear some funky Dixieland. Pretty mama, come and take me by the hand. You get it? It's fun. Pretty mama. Pretty mama, come on. Ah, oh, man. Joe and Logan popping in here. That was so, that was so fun. Uh, you know who would join the Doobies in 1975? Michael motherfucking McDonald. You know that? And what was his first hit with that band? 1976's Taking It to the Streets. Mm-hmm. Telling me the things you're gonna do to me. I ain't blind and I don't like what I think I see. Taking it to the streets. To the streets. No more need for running. Come on. Noise. Wish I could sing as, as good as Joe or Logan. <laughs> All of that was true, except the part about Eric Prince taking the Blackwater name from a Doobie Brothers song. Now, the swampy dark water that they dug through to build the first facility, that water gave the facility and company its name Blackwater. That makes more sense, I guess. Uh, they took their logo from the bears that wandered around the area, bear paw surrounded by the crosshairs of a rifle scope. Uh, the last piece of the Blackwater puzzle was Gary Jackson, a Navy SEAL veteran, 10 years Eric Sr., who also happened to be a computer expert and was also on the A-Team. I wish. Uh, Jackson, among many other things, designed the rudimentary Blackwater website. Uh, 1997, Eric Prince, Joan, the family moved back to Michigan to be closer to other princes. Uh, after clearing away all the swampland on May 15th, 1998, Blackwater now officially opens for business. It opens as the largest shooting facility in the U.S., the only 1,200-yard shooting, 1200 shooting range on the East Coast. A heavy steel building with movable interior doors and walls allowed for the trainers to constantly change layouts, scenarios. The trainers could observe their trainees from an observation deck above. They even dug a 20-acre lake to practice maritime special operations, allowing personnel to practice boarding ships from portside by helicopter from underwater. By mid-1998, the property had practically doubled in size to 6,000 acres, nearly half the size of Manhattan. Eric had now invested more than $6 million of his own money and that investment saw a quick return. Not a big return initially, but a quick return. Uh, they got their first contract right away, a small one, training SEAL Team 1 from California, a deal worth 25 grand. Navy paid with a credit card. 25 large was not enough to make payroll, and soon they were sending hourly workers home early. They tried drumming up business at gun shows, but they got booted because they couldn't afford a booth. Soon the wives of the founders chipped in at headquarters, helping them manage the books. Things were real tight for a little while. They offered firearms, uh, firearm safety courses to local hunters to bring in some cash. Blackwater only saw around $400,000 in revenue that first year, mostly through training nearby law enforcement and FBI SWAT teams. After expenses, they were operating at a huge loss. Meanwhile, in Michigan, Eric took over as chairman at Prince Machine. He could use uh, some Prince company money now to keep Blackwater afloat, and he regularly flew his single-engine Bush plane back to North Carolina to oversee Blackwater's development. All this is still going on. Joan is battling cancer still. She goes through cancer surgery, then chemotherapy, then radiation, all while she is pregnant, all while she is helping to found Blackwater. These are tough folk. 
April 20th, 1999, the Columbine Massacre happens at Columbine High School, just south of Denver in Colorado. Two deranged dipshit students murder 13 people before killing themselves. It would be a defining moment for law enforcement, and it would boost Blackwater's profile and embroil them in controversy for the first time. The Blackwater staff saw how poorly the law enforcement reaction was to this high-profile school shooting. Within six weeks, they put together the RU Ready High School training program, complete with 16-room mock school building, uh, complete with a, excuse me, 16-room mock school building for officers to train, screaming, alarm sounds, explosions, a space where live gunfire was allowed. Uh, the courses even had shooters hide among the students to lie and wait for the police. Uh, there were actors playing students covered in fake blood, screaming for help. Once word got out, critics thought this training course was callous, insensitive, and opportunistic. Prince responded by saying, somebody has to be in the business of worst case scenarios. And I don't disagree. I mean, how is a culture supposed to react to that? Just what, do nothing? Maybe try and wish away another attack? I am consistently amazed by what people choose to be outraged over. Uh, more and more SWAT units are being sent to be trained in this program now. Soon officers are uh, being sent from all over 50 states, as well as Haiti, Canada, Belgium, England. Blackwater's growing. February 1st, 2000, Blackwater wins its first federal contract for $204,000. For what? Not totally sure. Maybe classified. Uh, in 2000 also, Blackwater entered into the General Services Administration contracting database for government-approved goods and services, enabling it to now compete for larger long-term federal contracts. Tragedy strikes on October 12th, 2000, when suicide bombers attacked the guided missile destroyer USSS. Why did I throw another S in there? The USSSSSSSS Cole, no, USS Cole, in Yemen, killing 17 sailors and injuring 39 more. In a subsequent investigation, the Navy found that it was largely their own outdated policies and training procedures, as well as their rules of engagement, that contributed to the success of the attack. They thought a solution might be found in the private sector. And Blackwater would be the company that would check all the boxes for the Navy to upgrade its procedures. At this point, Blackwater only has 30 employees and hasn't yet trained 3,000 people in total. Now they get a big two-year deal worth $7 million, and the contract goes well. After the two years are up, the Navy would make a five-year deal with Blackwater to train sailors, hiking up the price to almost $40 million. They would end up training roughly 70,000 sailors by 2008, busing them you know, in from Norfolk daily to train on a replica ship. Blackwater now expands their original facility to over 7,000 acres. Uh, backing up to 2001, in January of 2001, Joan and Eric moved their growing family to Virginia as things are really picking up at Blackwater. They chose McLean, Virginia. In a moment of sad foreshadowing, Joan mentions that there were excellent medical facilities in the region to Eric in case they needed them. In the hustle and bustle of moving, Joan thought she'd pulled a muscle only to find out that her cancer had metastasized. Uh, it had spread throughout her spine and pelvis. Fuck. Uh, doctors give her just two and a half years to live. And then eight months later, another tragedy takes place. September 11, 2001, terrorist commandeer flights headed to New York and Washington, killing nearly 3,000 Americans. These attacks dramatically expand the U.S. market for security services offered by Blackwater and similar companies. On October 7, 2001, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, Operation Enduring Freedom marks the beginning of the Afghanistan war. It begins with a volley of 50 Tomahawk cruise missiles fired from land-based bombers two dozen strike aircraft, and U.S. and British ships and submarines. These forces quickly destroy much of Afghanistan's air defenses in advance of the American bombers to come, and Blackwater will become heavily involved in Operation Enduring Freedom. Prince applies to work in the Special Activities Division of the CIA's National Clandestine Service, the agency's most elite and secretive paramilitary wing. He goes through the vetting process, which includes a polygraph, standard tests of his loyalty, and a battery of psychological examinations 
and they reject him. They reject him on the basis of not having enough field experience. Nonetheless, more people than ever in the U.S. defense program are now learning Eric Prince's name and seeing how a private business like Blackwater can serve as an asset to the government's military and intelligence services. In 2002, Blackwater Security Consulting is founded, moving the company into the private security business in addition to the training business. Also in 2002, Blackwater wins a no-bid contract worth what many have reported was $5.4 million from the CIA. While this wouldn't be a lot of money by defense industry standards and not even as much as some of Blackwater's previous contracts, it did elevate Blackwater's status in D.C., put them in contact with people who would pay them much, much more in the future. Make a lot of CIA money in the future. Uh, the CIA set up bases in Afghanistan after the U.S. military had blasted the Taliban into the shadows for a time, and Blackwater was now tasked to protect CIA personnel in a U.S. base in Kabul. In May of 2002, Eric flies to Afghanistan himself to help expand his company's operations there. The relationship between the CIA and Blackwater partially stemmed from a long friendship between Prince and Alvin Buzzy Krongard, uh, the CIA's executive director. Prince formed another part of the Blackwater group, Blackwater Security Consulting, collaborating with former CIA operative Jamie Smith. And his old friend Krongard would provide this new firm with one of its first government contracts. In 2006, Krongard, you know, CIA ones. Uh, in 2006, Krongard explained Blackwater got a contract because they were the first people that could get people on the ground. Uh, the only concern we had was getting the best security for our people. If we thought Martians could have provided that or could have provided that, I guess we would have gone after them. After the first Afghanistan deployment, Krongard makes repeated visits to the Blackwater headquarters in North Carolina, even brings his kids along to use Blackwater's firing range, getting real chummy. Though he was denied a spot at the CIA, Eric would now receive a green badge, uh, a green badge access to most CIA stations around the world. So what he was doing now, arguably better than working for the CIA. He has CIA access, but a successful business owner's paycheck. Krongard will later join Blackwater's board of directors in 2007. On March 20th, 2003, the U.S. invades Iraq, toppling Saddam Hussein's regime, ushering in an unprecedented demand for U.S. military or U.S. private military security contractors on the Middle East battlefields. Only a few months later, on June 14th, 2003, Joan Prince sadly passes away at the age of just 36, leaving Eric and their four kids behind. Obviously, obviously so tragic. In the midst of so much career success, he loses his biggest supporter, best friend, mother of his kids. Uh, Eric will soon marry Joanna Ruth Hauk, the kid's nanny, uh, the following year in 2004. No rebound for this guy. No dating even. Doesn't even leave the house to find a new wife. They will stay married for eight years, divorcing in 2012. Uh, he's now married to Stacy DeLuke, a former Blackwater spokesperson. Throwing this info out now since we won't be spending you know, much time, well, any time, getting to know either of these women. On uh, March of 2004, Blackwater announces it has now won a contract to train Azerbaijani maritime commandos. Azerbaijan, considered by the U.S. to be a crucial ally in the oil and gas-rich Caspian region. Also, a CIA program to kill and, ha and capture al-Qaeda leaders is terminated and then revived under a new code name and secretly outsourced to Blackwater. The public would not learn about this until 2009. So Blackwater getting all kinds of work now taking over even a CIA mission and training non-U.S. military forces. Key officials leave the CIA's counterterrorist center, which had run the CIA program to kill and capture al-Qaeda leaders, to now go work for Blackwater. A retired intelligence officer intimately familiar with the assassination program would later say that outsourcing gave the agency more protection in case something went wrong, right? Exactly. Great example of the political optics I talked about earlier. The same people are basically running the same mission now, but U.S. politicians can now distance themselves from it a lot more effectively if anything goes wrong. 
Uh, Blackwater is given operational responsibility for targeting terrorist commanders, including planning and surveillance, and is awarded millions of dollars for tra- training and weaponry. It's still unclear and probably was left purposefully unclear whether Blackwater's role is merely for training and surveillance or if Blackwater employees were slated to actually carry out kidnappings and assassinations. Uh, to try and keep Blackwater's role in all this as secret as possible, Blackwater didn't have an official contract with the CIA. Instead, individual executives, including Eric Prince, were given contracts with the agency. Uh, when Congress is later briefed on all this, a lot of people are concerned. In 2009, former CIA agent Robert Baer writes, It's one thing, albeit often misguided, for the agency to outsource certain tasks to contractors. It's quite another to involve a company like Blackwater in even the planning and training of targeted killings, akin to the CIA going to the mafia to draw up a plan to kill Fidel Castro. Bayer believed that the Blackwater contracts were more about bilking the U.S. taxpayer than killing Osama bin Laden or any other al-Qaeda leaders. As soon as CIA money lands in Blackwater's account, it's beyond accounting and as good as gone, is what he would say. Uh, Bayer also claimed that Blackwater was involved in several highly questionable operations, including the apparent murder of several Iraqi and Afghan civilians. Now, are Bayer's criticisms valid here? Maybe, but I do question his motive in saying all this, right? Prince is his competition. Essentially, at this point, while Blackwater is working with the CIA, they are also competing with the CIA for work. Former CIA officers left the agency to go work with them, and Blackwater has been contracted to do the work the CIA had been doing. Are his accusations of civilian deaths valid? I bet they are. But how many civilians have the CIA killed over the years? Right? Tough to say, since that info is mostly classified, but I have to believe it is many thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands. So is it really any worse to have Blackwater carry out classified missions than it is for the CIA to carry them out, as long as they're accountable to someone back in D.C.? I don't think so, necessarily. Having no skin in the game, I feel like this is an example of the pot calling the kettle black here. Uh, March 31st, 2004, another tragedy will put the name Blackwater firmly in the minds of millions and millions of Americans and others around the world thanks to extensive news coverage. Four men from Blackwater Team November 1 arrive at the Army's Camp Taji, located 12 miles north of Baghdad. The men, 48-year-old Wes Badalona, 32-year-old Jerry Zovko, 38-year-old Mike Teague, all former Army Rangers, as well as 38-year-old former Navy SEAL Scott Helvinson. Helvinston. Uh, they were on a mission transporting an ESS employee, essentially a Halliburton employee, from Baghdad. While driving through the area on their way to Camp Taji, uh, two local boys approached their vehicles. Used to this, the men assume the boys want candy or other goods, but not this time. The boys were being used by local insurgents to lure the contractors into a death trap. Five gunmen with AK-47s emerge from hiding, riddle the vehicle with bullets. Badalona stomps the gas in the lead SUV. Ahead, the road has been blocked. Badalona wrenches the steering wheel to the left, barreling over the median, destroying one of the Mitsubishi's rear tires as he makes a U-turn. Now facing eastbound, the men meet a new blockade of stopped cars. And then there is a hail of machine gun fire. The car slams into a stopped car, then comes to a rest. Badalona's body slumps over under the pa- into the passenger seat. Zovko's head rolls back. The entire assault, over in seconds, they'd been ambushed. The ESS truck drivers were allowed to leave then because they weren't Americans. What happened to these men next would make the world wonder what the fuck is going on over in Iraq. Insurgents burned and mutilate four bodies of the contractors, then drag one of them through the streets, string up the two others from a bridge that spanned the Euphrates. Crowds of people beat the bodies, including kids. They're chanting, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Everybody's fucking super excited, super happy. Uh, The desecrations go on for hours. 
Nurses from the nearby hospital reportedly tried to remove the bodies from the bridge, and then the gunmen threatened to kill them as well. I watched uh, a bunch of footage of all this from a couple different news outlets. It, yeah, it's fucking super disturbing stuff. Two of the attackers carried video cameras, recorded the entire thing. They hoped the Western news outlets would spread it like wildfire. Uh, they did. The first ambush, or this first ambush, was one of the factors leading to the first Battle of Fallujah, where the U.S. military sought to take over the city. It also got a lot more people in the Western world talking about Blackwater and private security contractors. On April 4th, 2004, partly in an act of revenge for the contractors' deaths, U.S. Marines lay siege to Fallujah. Meanwhile, to the south in Najaf, Blackwater operations or operators defend the Coalition Provisional Authority's headquarters from a Meti Army attack. On May 1st, 2004, the U.S. withdraws from Fallujah. 28, uh, 27 excuse me, U.S. servicemen have been killed during the siege. Early reports stated that a total of 800 Iraqis died in the battle, as well of which 572 to 616 were civilians and 184 to 228 military operators. Holy shit, right? That is so much collateral damage, so many civilians. And actually that estimate, the U.S. estimate might be real low. Iraqi civilians and medical workers later estimated between four and 6,000 dead, most of them civilians. Now, how can those deaths be justified? What happened? Very hard to say. According to some Iraqi sources, most of the civilian deaths came from, quote, indiscriminate American bombing, which hit civilian houses. There are many children and old people killed because of this indiscriminate shelling. That quote comes from Bassam Abdel Kader, who was an assistant to a doctor working in Fallujah. Kader said he'd been making trips from Fallujah to Baghdad to bring back medicine to the city. The U.S. military strongly denied this charge and others like it. U.S. General John Abizade, head of U.S. forces in Iraq at the time, said in response, we've been attacking to secure the city of Fallujah and we're running into active resistance. It is very clear where we're taking fire from and where we're taking fire from, we're applying the appropriate proportionate combat power to eliminate that resistance. We are being very deliberate and precise in the application of that combat power to prevent any wounding or injuring of non-combatants in the area. I do have to say, I do like General Abizaid, uh, you know, watching interviews and stuff. Third generation Lebanese American, speaks Arabic, seems to be very pro winning hearts and minds kind of guy, very into not fucking over the locals. Uh, U.S. military spokesman Brigadier General Mark Kimmett said insurgents in the city were using Iraqi civilians as human shields and firing weapons at U.S. forces from inside schools, mosques, and hospitals. Urban warfare, so fucking ugly. So lucky our streets and suburbs aren't being bombed and riddled with automatic weapons fire and light explosives. So lucky not to live in a perpetual war zone. Uh, back to Blackwater now. January 5th, 2005, families of the four contractors killed in Fallujah file a wrongful death suit against Blackwater, claiming the company failed to provide the protection it promised. The family claimed that the company broke their contract by cutting corners on security costs in order to turn a greater profit. They cite evidence that the convoy that the Blackwater employees were driving lacked both armor for protection and a rear gunner, making it extremely easy for just a few Iraqi gunmen to kill them. Even more, they had four men per vehicle instead of the usual six, and they claimed there was an alternate path around Fallujah that the contractors could have taken, but they didn't because according to the plaintiffs, Blackwater didn't conduct the proper risk assessment of the area which they were contractually obliged to do. This case would be settled in 2012 with the families receiving a confidential settlement amount. Eric Prince wrote that he found the trial sad and painful on every front. Now, did Blackwater cut corners here? I don't know enough about war zone procedures to speak intelligently to that. Some sources say they did not. A few others say they did. I will say that a big fear with privatizing military operations 
is that, you know, these companies are going to put corporate profit ahead of human life, that an incentive for profit will take precedence over spending more money to keep contractors safe, as safe as humanly possible. Are private security contractors given less firepower, less protection in the form of less effective defensive equipment, less armored vehicles, et cetera, than their active military counterparts? I can't find a good source that speaks intelligently to that. Uh, no solid data providing, com uh, you know, compare and contrast that I can find. Based on a lot of opinions, it seems that private contractors are not being given inferior equipment. If they are, uh, there sure isn't a lot of press about that. I mentioned earlier that private contractor deaths are currently higher than active military deaths, but, you know, they do have greater numbers. And it seems, uh, you know, they may be given dangerous assignments, more dangerous assignments more often. In February of 2005, Kofor Black, the former chief of the CIA's counterterrorist center, joins Blackwater. What a great CIA name, by the way. Kofor Black. Sounds made up. Maybe it is. This guy's mysterious. You can't find this guy's birth date online anywhere, which is odd for someone who in political circles is pretty well known. Uh, Agent Kofor Black. That's, uh, that's who you want running a CIA counterterrorist center, you know? The guy with that name. Instead of, say, uh, Agent Whiffler Dinkle. Man, you don't put Agent Whiffler Dinkle in charge of anything important. You put that guy in charge of recreation. Hey, Agent Dinkle. I need you to produce an inventory report on lawn darts and volleyballs. Uh, sir, yes, sir. Uh, would it be possible, sir, for me to work with Agent Black on creating new terrorist location profiles, sir? Fuck no, Agent Dinkle. I have uh, uh, other, uh, uh, more important work for you. I need you to uh, buy a new set of balls for the billiards table. Nothing cheap, right? Get some Brunswick Centennials, tournament stuff. Uh, anyway, Agent Black, not Agent Whiffler Dinkle, becomes the company's vice chairman at Blackwater. More controversy. More people are wondering. How close are the CIA and Blackwater? How okay is it for so many CIA officers who obviously know a lot of sensitive shit to be working now in the private sector? On April 21st, 2005, seven Blackwater contractors killed in two incidents in Iraq, the company's worst single day of casualties to that point. May of 2005, Blackwater-owned company called Greystone Limited is incorporated in Barbados. Among other services, it offers, it offers proactive engagement teams to conduct stabilization efforts, asset protection and recovery, and emergency personnel withdrawal. Clients are also offered training in defensive and offensive small group operations. More people are now starting to throw around the term mercenary to describe these contractors, a term seen as inflammatory, but also, uh, what is the real difference? Well, I'll tell you. A mercenary is a professional soldier hired to serve in a foreign army. A private security contractor can be a professional soldier as well, but one beholden to a corporation, not a country, a lot of people do not find this distinction reassuring. Uh, also in May of 2005, Blackwater Worldwide, one of several Blackwater companies, deploys CS nerve gas on a crowded green zone checkpoint. They release the gas from a helicopter and an armored vehicle. Army Captain Kinsey Clark documents and reports the incident. The Army lawyers would claim that the use of riot control agents required the approval of the military's most senior commanders. Commanders were worried that the incident would be used as propaganda by the opposition. Blackwater, in turn, claims the contract to provide security for American officials in Iraq with the coalition uh, provisional authority did not address the use of CS gas. When the contracts for Blackwater, DynCorp, and Triple Canopy were renewed after this incident, these contracts do now forbid the use of CS gas. What is CS gas? Uh, very similar to tear gas. In fact, the defining component of tear gas is commonly referred to as CS gas. It's a non-lethal riot control agent. Don't want you to think they were dumping mustard gas or something on people. Uh, on June 25th, 2005, Blackwater guards shoot and kill an Iraqi man on the side of the road south of Baghdad. The guards failed to report the incident 
which a U.S. State Department memo describes as the random death of an innocent Iraqi citizen. When details like this leak, many PMC critics wonder how many other random citizen deaths are occurring. Fair to wonder. This is very troubling. August 29th, 2005, in the U.S., Hurricane Katrina strikes the Gulf Coast, one of the worst natural disasters in U.S. history. Katrina caused an estimated $161 billion in damage. In New Orleans, Katrina breaches uh, levees, uh, floods 80% of the city. In total, it affected more than 15 million people directly who had to evacuate or lose property or who lost property. Uh, the estimates of the number of people killed by Hurricane Katrina range from 1245 to 1833. Katrina created a new market for Blackwater security services. Blackwater operators arrived within hours, strapped with weapons and combat gear. According to Prince, a number of hit pieces were then put out during uh, this time about Blackwater. New York Times journalist Chris Hedges wrote the piece, Blackwater, what if our mercenaries turn on us? Pictures of the heavily armored and armed men spread throughout the media, making Blackwater's first foray into the U.S. domestic security market a controversial one. Eric Prince, unsurprisingly, was proud of his company's efforts. The more than 100 men from Blackwater that arrived within 36 hours of Katrina's landfall moved 11 tons of supplies rescued 121 stranded people. They provided food, fresh water, other supplies, all Prince claims at their own cost, aside from fuel, which was paid for by the Coast Guard. After the initial chaos, uh, with much of the area facing blackouts and looting, the operation became one of security again. Uh, James Ridgway, in a Blackwater critical Mother Jones article, said, the Blackwater operators described their mission in New Orleans as securing neighborhoods as if they were talking about Seder City. Ten days after the storm, the New York Times reported that although the city had returned to order and looting was no longer taking place, Blackwater was still treating it like a war zone. The local police superintendent ordered all weapons, including legally registered firearms, confiscated from civilians. But as the Times noted, that order didn't apply to the hundreds of security guards hired by businesses and some wealthy individuals to protect property. Also, I highly, I highly doubt uh, any motherfuckers intending to lo uh, loot, rob, and kill turned their weapons over to authorities either. Right? I mean, come on, let's get real. This whole situation makes a lot of people real nervous. Uh, why are private contractors being called into police a U.S. city? I get that anxiety. A lot of people get nervous when martial law is declared and the military is sent in to secure an area too. And I get that anxiety as well. Uh, the real question regarding today's topic is, should it make you more nervous to have a private military patrolling your streets after a local police superintendent asks guns to be confiscated from citizens than the U.S. military doing the same thing? Both of those patrols would make me equally nervous. I don't want the military or a private security force trying to take anyone's legal guns, right? How about fuck both those options? Uh, September 21st, 2005, Rob Ricker, or Richer, uh, formerly the deputy head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, joins Blackwater. More CIA and Blackwater crossover. He becomes vice president of intelligence. According to journalist Ken Silverstein, uh, this guy joins Blackwater immediately after leaving the agency. He was a big get for Blackwater, had ties to Jordan's King Abdullah. After being hired, he helps Blackwater land a lucrative deal with the Jordanian government to provide the same sort of training previously offered by the CIA, right? Blackwater, again, competing with the CIA for work was crazy. Also in September 2005, Blackwater receives a no-bid contract to provide more security for government facilities in New Orleans. Cue more nervousness. When details like this leak out, a lot of people are bothered by uh, no-bid contracts. Why is the government, you know, uh, not letting anyone else bid on these contracts? From what I can tell looking around online, no bid contracts are usually given out when there are security issues surrounding the contract. Essentially, it's not a job they feel like opening up to various bidders because they don't want to share those details with various contractors, which does make sense. 
right? They want to keep the details somewhat classified and they want to give the work to whoever they trust the most. Uh, does Does the classified part make sense? Like if you're bidding on a job, you need to know obviously what the job is, right? How much work are you going to be doing? What costs are you going to incur doing that work? Where will you be working on what exactly? And when you can't know that, when the information is sensitive, when it's classified, then how the fuck are you supposed to make a proper bid, right? It's not like the, you know, it makes sense in that situation. It's not like the CIA can just put it up, uh, you know, pin the details on the wall of a local coffee shop. Uh, On November 28th, a Blackwater convoy collides with 18 cars while driving to and from a meeting at the Iraqi Ministry of Oil. This is 2005 still. Investigators later determined that operators' accounts of the incident are invalid, inaccurate, and at best dishonest reporting. According to one Blackwater operator, the convoy's tactical commander openly admitted giving clear direction to primary driver to conduct these acts of random negligence for no apparent reason. Ultimately, two Blackwater employees are fired. Sounds like they should have been. Acts like this are not just starting to concern the public. They're pissing off a lot of active military members in the Middle East. Military commanders are concerned that contractors' individual private missions are often not in line with their military objectives. This is a problem, you know, with PMCs that needs to be resolved. Uh, For example, contractors doing escort duty are going to be judged by their corporate bosses solely on whether they get their client from point A to point B, not whether they win Iraqi hearts and minds along the way. Ann Starr, a former coalition provisional authority advisor, described the difference between private escort and military escort when she traveled with the U.S. military escort and with guards from Blackwater and another State Department contracted security firm, DynCorp. While the uniformed soldiers kept her safe, they also did such things as playing cards and drinking tea with local Iraqis. Uh, The private contractors had a different focus. She said, quote, what they told me was our mission is to protect the principal at all costs. If that means pissing off the Iraqis, too bad. All right, this obviously is troubling. This protection first and last mentality has led to many common operating procedures or practices that clearly enrage locals for good reason. In an effort to keep potential threats away, contractors drive convoys up the wrong sides of the road. They will ram civilian vehicles. They will toss smoke bombs. They will fire weaponry as warnings. All is standard practice, which is super fucked up. Uh, There are several disturbing videos online of Blackwater contractors that I've watched smashing into Iraqi civilians' cars. Uh, In one case, actively fucking running over a civilian. And then they just keep on driving to get their target safely to the destination. Clearly not a good look. After a month spent embedded with Blackwater contractors in Baghdad, journalist Robert Young Pelton said they're famous for being very aggressive. They use their machine guns like car horns. U.S. officers in Iraq, such as Colonel uh, Hamas, were worried that while contractors may have been fulfilling their contracts, they were also making enemies each time they went out. U.S. Army Colonel Peter Mansour, one of the leading experts on counterinsurgency, Similarly noted in January 2007 that if they push traffic off the roads or if they shoot up a car that looks suspicious, whatever it may be, they may be operating within their contract to the detriment of the mission, which is to bring the people over to your side. I would much rather see basically all armed entities in a counterinsurgency operation fall under a military chain of command. Uh, This to a non-military, never served, never been to the Middle East, random podcaster uh, like my eyes seems to be a very valid concern regarding PMCs, right? If say a group of security contractors is beholden to the CIA or the State Department, whoever's paying the contract and not to say the U.S. Army, then they can simultaneously accomplish their contract goals while also really fucking up overall military objectives. And that, of course, is not good. Just like it's not good to treat random foreign civilians, you know, like fucking uh, speed bumps, you know, like the enemy. I also think this is an issue that could be pretty pretty easily resolved, uh, at least on paper. 
Soldiers have rules of engagement. Contractors are given corporate policies to follow. And those policies can be reshaped, right? They could, they could end up following the same rules of engagement, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not over there. But why aren't people, you know, uh, ramming civilian cars indiscriminately being immediately fired? Why are they allowed to do that? What better oversight procedures could be put into place to fix that problem? Something I'm sure could be done. Uh, finally, at the close of 2005, Blackwater's federal contracts now total $352 million. In April of 2006, Blackwater Vice Chairman Kofer, uh, Kofer Black suggested Blackwater troops be deployed to areas around the world facing humanitarian crises. Uh, one of them being the Darfur region of Sudan, uh, where though, uh, though the second Sudanese civil war had ended in 2005, massacres are still taking place. Kofer Black takes this idea to the Special Operations Forces Exhibition in Jordan, where he claims that Blackwater wants to contribute to the common good. He argues that big military operations tend to get mired in NATO's bureaucracy, and that Blackwater could easily send a brigade-sized peacekeeping unit of about 5,000 troops for a fraction of the cost of NATO operations. And on paper, I gotta say, with the proper oversight, of course, I like this idea. How many lives could be saved through effective PMC intervention in situations like Darfur? Uh, at the close of 2006, Blackwater was revealed to have yet another great year. They had another great year working for Uncle Sam. Federal contracts had now gone up to $593 million for the year. Uh, documents released by the state and defense departments on April 24, 2007, reveal that private contractors paid by U.S. firms now outnumber U.S. troops in Iraq. At this point, over 180,000 civilians, including Americans, foreign citizens, and Iraqis are working under U.S. contracts in Iraq, compared to about 160,000 soldiers and several thousand civilian government employees stationed in Iraq. On September 16, 2007, Blackwater Guards on a State Department convoy, opened fire in Nisr Square in Baghdad, killing 17 Iraqis and wounding two dozen others. Their actions this day would bring the most intense criticism to date of Blackwater, and rightfully so. An FBI investigation found that at least 14 of the shootings were not justified. The widow of one of the 17 civilians, Um Tassin, uh, would say of Blackwater, those people are a group of criminals. What they did was a massacre. Pushing them out is the best solution. They destroyed our family. Blackwater guards claimed that the convoy was ambushed, their convoy, and that they fired at the attackers in defense of their convoy. The Iraqi government and Iraqi police investigator, Faris Saadi Abdul, stated that the killings were unprovoked. And the next day, Blackwater Worldwide's license to operate in Iraq is temporarily revoked. It'll be permanently revoked before long. In December of 2008, the U.S. Department of Justice would announce it was filing criminal charges against five of the Blackwater employees and ordered them to surrender to the FBI. Five were charged with 14 counts of manslaughter, 20 counts of attempted manslaughter, and a weapons violation. In April of 2015, a federal district judge would sentence one of these Blackwater men to life in prison, while the other three guards were sentenced to 30 years in prison each. Charges against the other man were dropped. Prince would claim in his 2013 book, Civilian Warriors, the inside story of Blackwater and the unsung heroes of the war on terror, that it was easy to think about what his men could have done after the fact, but being in the line of fire was different. He declares that he will not second guess the split, sec the split second decisions of his employees, but many others would and did. Critics were quick to point out that Blackwater's shootings overall were more than the combined number by Dine Corp and Triple Canopy, the other two companies on the same contract with Blackwater. What was going on? There was a lot of talk about Blackwater con contractors running wild in Iraq and being way too trigger happy, about them showing a callous disregard for Iraqi civilian safety, a, a very much a uh, shoot first, ask questions later mentality. But Prince says this view lacks context. He says Blackwater carried more security details than the other contractors. 
that they carried out 16,000 personal security detail missions in Iraq over the same two-year time frame, more than DynCorp and Triple Canopy did during that time frame. So, of course, there would be more shootings attributed to them. And he points out that, uh, you know, 195 incidents that were the amount reported by Blackwater personnel where shots were fired were only 1.2% of their total missions. So he claimed that nearly 99% of the time, their missions were completely peaceful. Uh, the big question with the Nisur Square massacre is, does it represent the overall ethos of Blackwater or was it an isolated incident? Uh, I cannot speak to that answer. Uh, despite a lot of negative press over these shootings in 2007, Blackwater's federal contracts totaled $1 billion now. They're making more and more money every year, as are other PMCs. Overseas military efforts are becoming more and more outsourced, privatized. The following fall, another issue with Blackwater and PMCs in general arises. U.S. privately trained military contractors start to work for the enemy. Uh, this is just a wee bit troubling. Between August and October of 2008, former Afghan national police who were trained by U.S. forces, including security companies like Blackwater, start to defect to the Taliban, according to Al Jazeera. The channel reports that around 70 former police in the province of Herat have joined the Taliban in the past two months. Recruits featured in a video report carrying weapons provided by the Afghan government and certificates for weapons training from the U.S. Some of these fighters openly display their Blackwater-issued IDs. One Taliban recruit, Abdul Rahim, says he received training from Blackwater for 45 days. He explains, I can use the training to save my life in these mountains, and I can also use it to fight them. Our soil is occupied by Americans, and I want them to leave this country. That is my only goal, says another former Blackwater employee, Suleiman Amiri, who had 16 men under his Taliban command. More questions are raised. Should PMCs be training for nationals? I mean, that is scary that they will defect the Taliban. If you know anything about the Taliban, uh, not a good group of people. Uh, not big on women's rights, for example. Uh, far worse than the princes when it comes to homosexual rights. Uh, January 28th, 2009, more bad press for Blackwater. This day, the Iraqi government informs the U.S. Embassy in, embassy in Baghdad that it will not issue a new operating license to Blackwater worldwide. In effect, the decision forces Blackwater to cease operations in Iraq. Many Blackwater employees are accused of using excessive force while protecting U.S. diplomats and State Department personnel. Those Blackwater employees not accused, uh, not accused of improper conduct may continue working as private contractors in Iraq as long as they quit Blackwater and work for other firms. The new rule states that Blackwater must leave Iraq as soon as a joint U.S.-Iraq committee uh, finalizes guidelines for the conduct and liability of private contractors. Uh, under earlier agreements, Blackwater and other U.S. contractors had been entirely immune from prosecution under Iraqi law. You know, which is pretty crazy. Uh, now the Iraqi government wants these contractors under their authority, which is a valid thing to want. I mean, would you want private security contractors operating in your nation with impunity, not beholden, not beholden to your government? I sure as fuck wouldn't. However, uh, my government, despite all of its flaws, way more stable than Iraq's government. If I lived in Iraq, I might not want my government to be regulating anything. Uh, Iraqi Interior Ministry spokesman Major General Abdul Karim Khalaf says that when the committee finalizes the process, those companies that don't have licenses, such as Blackwater, should leave Iraq immediately. On February 13th, 2009, Blackwater Worldwide announces that it is changing its name to Z Services. Time for a rebrand. Eric would state about the decision that Z was a reference to the chemical element xenon, a colorless, odorless gas found in trace amounts in the Earth's atmosphere. It represented a new, understated direction for the company. They were to go back to their training center roots, expand the instructional programs, and fade into the background. More rebranding follows in 2010. The company renames itself to Academy. 
It's acquired by the investor group USTC Holdings for about $200 million. And Eric Prince removes himself from operations. He's no longer Mr. Blackwater. The academy seems to have shifted focus away from security details and back to training. It has many, many training bases at its disposal now, not only in the U.S., but also abroad, where more than 40,000 people train annually. Uh, they still work primarily for Uncle Sam. About 90% of their profits come from contracts with the U.S. government. December 15th, 2011, the war in Iraq officially ends. The conflict in Afghanistan officially ends three years later on December 28th, 2014. Uh, private U.S. contractors do continue to operate in both places, as do active military. There are today roughly 2,500 U.S. service members in Iraq, 2,500 additional in Afghanistan. It's the lowest number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan since operations started there in 2001. There are an estimated 18,000 U.S. security contractors now in Afghanistan and another approximately 4,700 in Iraq, I think. Uh, the number is constantly fluctuating. And who knows how many are there on assignments that have not been publicly disclosed. December of 2020, Nicholas Slatton, Paul Slough, Evan Liberty, and Dustin Hurd, the four Blackwater contractors convicted for 14 deaths in the Nisauer uh, Square Massacre in 2007, are pardoned by President Trump, putting the Blackwater name back in the media, enraging many around the world, more controversy, and that controversy will bring us to the end of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. A lot of info. Uh, before I recap and share some final thoughts on all of this, where is Eric Prince now? Well, he's been busy. Since he sold Blackwater, he's pursued various projects across the globe, from the United Arab Emirates in Somalia or to Somalia to Hong Kong. Prince is deputy chairman on the board of yet another private security company, another PMC, this one called Frontier Services Group, incorporated in Hong Kong. FSG has several contracts with the People's Republic of China for what Prince has termed purely logistics and construction support in the Xinjiang province of Western China. I'm not sure if I believe that, that that's all they're doing. Uh, he also was the focus of an investigation for lying to Congress during the House Intelligence Committee's uh, uh, investigation into Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. He was accused of meddling to help Trump's election. Uh, there in 2017, he met with White House and Pentagon officials to pitch a plan to privatize the Afghan war entirely using contractors in lieu of American troops. Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense at the time, rejected the idea. So, you know, he's still working in the same kind of field he was working in before, just for a different, different people, a different company. Uh, let's recap, talking about some pros and cons with Blackwater and PMCs in general now. Pros, right? PMCs, uh, seen as having inherent advantages over militaries with regards to cost, flexibility, responsiveness. We laid all of that out already. You know, it's, uh, it's cheaper to use PMCs. Also, they are not bound by the same international laws that militaries are. They're not tied up with the same red tape. You know, they have political advantages as well, better optics, easier for politicians to distance themselves from uh, them than they, than it is from national militaries. Uh, another pro, contractors make a lot more money than their active military counterparts. Shouldn't soldiers be offered the chance to make more money? Who doesn't want to get paid more for what they do? And who deserves to get paid more than people doing some of the most dangerous work on the planet? Uh, cons, some military policy experts say contractors are taking the jobs of active military servicemen, also that they can do damage, like we stated, to overall military objectives. Uh, they're not under the control of military officers serving in the same areas. That's problematic. Not having control of your team, not often a good thing in wartime. Uh, retired Army General and Reconstruction expert William Nash said that it's dangerous for the U.S. military to not have control of all coalition guns in Iraq. 
Uh, because little statistical info is out there, there are a lot of remaining questions about PMCs we just don't have answers for. Are contractors better or worse than service members in achieving a country's political ends abroad? Don't know. Is the U.S. using them effectively, making the most of what they do well, mitigating the areas where they fall short? I don't know. Finally, groups like Blackwater have received a lot of negative press over the years. But is that really fair? Are, are they being scapegoated? Uh, Eric Prince thinks that absolutely has been the case. Prince claims that Blackwater was made into a scapegoat for, uh, you know, the public's fury over the Bush administration's actions in the Middle East. Far from not having control of their PMCs, Prince insists that the government was actively instructing them how to operate, you know, to, to do what they were doing. And then later, when things, you know, uh, got out in the press that were not uh, very good for optics, Capitol Hill made it seem like PMCs were just running rogue, like Blackwater. So that the government wouldn't have to take accountability, take responsibility for their part in some of these incidents. Says Eric Prince, I was strung up so the politicians can feign indignation and pretend my men hadn't done exactly what they had been paid to do. So, you know, fucking optics, fucking politics. I don't doubt for a second there's a lot of truth to this. I know there are good politicians out there. I'm not one of those who thinks that they're all bad. But as a group, I literally can't think of another group I trust less. Like the stereotype, uh, stereotype of politicians in general being untrustworthy as fuck did not get pulled from thin air. Uh, would Bush, as Prince has said, or any other president throw these groups under the bus and throw them fast and hard if it was politically advantageous to do so? Ah, uh, you bet your sweet ass. All part of the game that maybe does, I don't know, just have to be played. What a crazy topic. Still so many unturned rocks on this one. Such a vast subject. Blackwater, one of many PMCs, one of many parts, uh, once at the heart, of a mega trillion dollar geopolitical soap opera. So many PMCs still at the heart uh, of this giant military industrial complex. Should companies like Blackwater be used more or less or not at all going forward? Well, they seem to be unavoidable. I'm not sure after all this that there are any strong reasons not to use them. If they're cheaper to use, if the soldiers working for them get paid more, if they can accomplish objectives as well as their active military counterparts, well, then what's not to like? Are PMCs war profiteers? Maybe. But as long as they're not starting wars, is that really such a terrible thing? If a war has to be fought and wars have always been fought, uh, you know, then within reason, shouldn't those who help fight in them, who help win them, get fucking paid? I don't know. Seems fair to me. Let's head to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Blackwater is the most recognizable name in the world of private security contractors, uh, but uh, they were one of many, many names. Many PMCs work with the U.S. government and other governments to this day. Number two, the Prince family outside of PMCs, pretty polarizing bunch. Hopefully, like many other modern Christians, they can relax, let go of their anti-LGBTQ stance and accept that our culture won't actually collapse and fall into decay if two dudes or two ladies get married. Number three, Prince sees his industry as being in the worst case scenario business. And when you're dealing with worst case scenarios, you're bound to get some bad press. Shit is bound to go wrong sometimes. Blackwater contractors have for sure done some really fucked up things, but how many lives have they also saved? Do they really deserve all the negative press they received? Number four, never put agent Whiffler Dinkle in charge of anything more important than cataloging lawn darts. And number five, new info. Eric Prince has been back in the news recently. A United Nations probe has found that Eric broke a Libya arms embargo to aid a rebel commander there. Prince, still very active in the PMC world, uh, allegedly ran an $80 million scheme that involved delivering two armed gunboats, three attack helicopters, and at least one military drone to Libya in 2019. 
as well as potential plans to create an assassination team to kill certain Libyan military commanders. Princess categorically denied doing any of this. According to the report, Christian Durant, a former business partner and friend of Princess, traveled to Amman, or, uh, Amman to purchase three U.S.-made AH-1F Cobra helicopter gunships from the Jordanian government. The team also obtained electronic warfare equipment to jam enemy communications in a mobile command center. The Cobras were packed in shipping containers, ready to be loaded onto Russian-built cargo planes before other Jordanian authorities intervened, blocking the transfer. Amman requires U.S. government permission to resell American-made military hardware, and no formal permission had been granted according to the U.N. investigation. Members of the mercenary team reportedly told Jordanian authorities that they had received green light from the highest levels of the U.S. government, but calls placed to Washington did not support that assertion the U.N. reported. Well, of course they didn't. Ah, they get in fucking trouble. They're not going to say, this goes back to optics again. They're not going to be like, no, what? Oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah, we did that. We authorized Prince, absolutely, for sure. I bet they authorized him. Come on. Fucking CIA trained this guy. The CIA does shit like this all the time around the world. Uh, Libya has been operating on some level of pretty fucked to seriously fucked for decades. Don't hear about them in the news as much, but still a lot of turmoil over there. Uh, again, yeah, did the U.S. authorize the deal Prince is accused of? That's what some think. Some think that the Trump administration gave it the green light. And now, you know, when some PMC hands get slapped, people in D.C. again act like they don't know what's going on. I don't believe that. Uh, PMC's not going anywhere. Too many advantages to using them. And I think the biggest ones are political. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Blackwater has been sucked. Uh, I found the world of PMC's incredibly interesting. I definitely did more revisions of these notes than... Quite a few of the past sucks. We've been doing a lot of heavier ones lately. A lot of ones that are stretching my brain muscles. Uh, hope we did okay. Hope you enjoyed it. Bojangles loved it so much, he took a job with a PMC. He left a suck dungeon. Uh, he's headed out somewhere in the Middle East right now, apparently. Uh, best of luck, good boy, Bojangles. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. The script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock, Keith, runningbadmagicmerch.com. Working on socials with Liz Hernandez. Again, the new and improved customer service email, store at badmagicproductions.com. Thanks to all those who joined the Call to the Curious private Facebook group. Over 26,000 curious members chatting it up, making new friends, posting outrageous memes, forming a shit ton of subgroups, etc. I love it. Uh, thanks again to Liz and her all-seeing eyes running the Call to the Curious Facebook page. Megan Howell, Ellie Darling, Danny Ryan, Robbie Erickson, Jacob Carey, Kaylee Fitzpatrick, Jeffrey Bistrin, uh, Adam Gustafson, Gustafson, I think, <laughs> Kathleen Soller, Shelley, and Annenen, Annenson. Oh, boy. Annenson, Annenson. There we go. I even wrote out phonetics and I'm still like, what? Uh, thanks to everyone having fun on Discord as well. Thanks to all of your space, all of you space lizards playing Time Suck Trivia on the Time Suck app. Bodie 210, currently in the round eight lead with 5,772 points. Close, close race this month. Uh, new round starts a few hours after this episode drops on March 1st. Next week, we return to another cult, 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 kind of. We dive into the Elan School and the horrors of the troubled teen industry. Founded in 1974 by Joe Ritchie, the Elan School was a place where individuality and happiness went to die. Parents paid upwards of $50,000, more than a year's tuition at Harvard, for their child, some as young as 12, to be kidnapped in the middle of the night, brought to a crumbling campus in the middle of fucking nowhere, Maine. Once there, the student would be required to live by the Elan School's draconian rules, which included punishments for not smiling and punishments for smiling too much. They were told to write down their guilts, things they'd done wrong, and then were blackmailed. 
They were encouraged to rat out other students. They were required to physically fight each other in a horrifying event the school simply called The Ring. All this was supposedly therapeutic, and it was intended to cure them, heal them, put them on the right track. Spoiler alert, it did not fucking traumatize them. Though the Elan School was not a cult per se, its methods were very cult-like. It only shut down in 2011. Even now, thousands of teens each year are sent to similar boot camps, wilderness survival camps, conversion therapy, places where they're isolated from their families. Many of these programs do have their origins in something that was definitely a cult, a rehab center by the name of the Synanon, uh, or by Synanon, of the name Synanon, shut down in 1991, uh, commonly called the Synanon Cult. A rigorous schedule, physical exercise, therapy, learning the value of responsibility can help put a misguided person back on the right track, for sure. But the Elan School did not do that for the kids trapped there. What terrifying shit happened within the walls of the Elan School? Tune in to Time Suck next week to find out. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Going to open with a real quick observation from confused sucker Oz Oz. Oz Oz writes, okay, seriously, still catching up. Just finished the suck on the Church of Satan. How the fuck are you able to speak Latin perfectly and not be able to pronounce genome or nuclear, which is, I know, genome. You know, I had to look it up. Uh, fair. Oz Oz, I wish I knew. Maybe I can donate my brain to science. You know, after I die, they can be like, oh, oh there's a problem. Uh, there's an empty space where part of a brain is supposed to be. <laughs> Uh, yeah, full disclosure, I had to look up how to say uh, the genome. Genome, Jesus Christ, for this update. because I, I still default in my brain to genome. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I definitely don't do any of that intentionally. I don't play it up. It's like, oh, some people like it. I just <laughs> mispronounce words more. If you ever want to like look at my notes, go to the TimeSuck app and you can download a PDF right out there off the app of any of the shows and just look at how many fucking phonetic spellings I put in every episode. It's preposterous. Uh, and still, I see the phonetics and I'm like, God, I don't remember what those phonetic things mean. God damn it. I make, I've made up my own little phonetic list. I just like, I do like rhymes with this word, that kind of stuff. Uh, now for an entertaining ostrich update from not an Aus- Aussie uh, sucker, but a Kansas sucker, Alexis Johnson. Not an emu update, but damn close. Alex, Alexis writes, dear can dummins, <laughs> king of the curious, sovereign of the suckers, duke of the dummies. For a little backstory, during the 80s, Kansas has many emu and ostrich farms uh, due to the price of meat and products. Sometime during the late 80s, the market fell apart. Feeding and housing then became too expensive, so farmers started just to let them go. In the late 90s, 97, I think, the department my dad worked for got a call about a loose emu on the interstate. A coworker of his responded, tried catching the bird without luck because it was running in and out in and out of 80 mile per hour traffic. He decided to use deadly force. So I guess this is an emu and ostrich update. Some PETA-loving Karen witnessed this and caused some issues for the department. From that point on, they had to receive permission to euthanize a wild, loose animal in public. Fast forward a few years, my dad gets put out on a call for a loose emu out in the county. He goes looking and sees it in a field of horses. He pulls up and approaches it, only to realize it is a juvenile ostrich. It's not an emu, but close. He manages to get it cornered in a barn. He goes to the house to ask the owner if the ostrich belongs to him or if he knows who it might belong to. He's told that he doesn't. Uh, doesn't belong to this guy. He doesn't know who it, it could be. My dad proceeds to tell the man that he himself doesn't have the authority to shoot the animal, but the man does if it's harassing his livestock. He calls his chief to tell him the details and his chief tells him he will get back with him on how to proceed. Meanwhile, my dad goes to see if he can wrangle that monster bird. The ostrich starts chirping at him, so he decides to chirp back. 
<laughs> After this goes on for a bit, this is quite a scene. My dad becomes frustrated, tries grabbing the bird's neck. Without any success, he decides to start voraciously yelling at the bird. Frightened, the bird now tries to bury its head in the ground. But since Kansas is dry and not sandy, he just manages to stun himself. Long enough for my dad to grab his neck, struggled enough to end up straddling this thing. At this point, the chief radios in, tells him he has to go ahead to euthanize the animal. He manages to radio back something along the lines of, no go, I have him in custody. At some point, the homeowner joins him in the barn. They manage to get a burlap sack over this thing's head, uh, put it in the back of the patrol truck. The homeowner then says, oh yeah, while I was inside, I remembered my neighbors down the way have ostriches. Uh, they then managed to return the great beast to his home. Lucky for both my dad and the ostrich, they came out unscathed. Sorry for the long message, but I thought it was fun to share. Three out of five stars. Keep on sucking. P.S. Sorry for any mistakes. I'm a welder, not an English major. Alexis. Well, Alexis, you did a great job. You must have paid good attention in English class. That's crazy that that thing stunned itself, slamming its head into the ground. I, I looked up some info and ostriches, uh, one thing, faster than emus. They can hit speeds of up to 45 miles per hour, which is ridiculous. Also, contrary to popular belief, they do not bury their heads in the sand, but they will try to get their bodies as flat as possible and they will lay their heads very flat on the ground and, and become completely still. They want to look like a lump of, you know, dirt or debris to throw off their predators. And random ostrich info, they can kick hard enough to literally kill a lion. Doesn't happen often, but I guess it has happened. So good thing your dad did not get ostrich van damned. Uh, maybe that thing slamming its head in the ground was just, you know, part of the chaos of some interspecies UFC match that your dad was fighting in. Thanks for sending in that message, Alexis. Uh, Aussie, Aussie sucker. Uh, Scott Finley now gives me a lingo update on last week's emu suck. Scott writes, good day, master sucker fucker upper of all things linguistic. Just finished listening to episode 232 on the great emu war as a 40-year-old Western Australian man. Just want to say thank you for informing uh, of this, as almost everyone I've asked had no fucking idea this ever happened. It's hilarious to me that many Americans think we ride kangaroos to school over here, but uh, then you pull out a crazy bunch of uh, Aussie history. Educate us on something we knew nothing about. Anyway, just wanted to congratulate you on the pronunciations. You did pretty well. One thing I would ask is to try and pronounce Aussie correctly. You say Aussie, as in Aussie Osborne. Love the show along with STD and Is We Dumb. Can I give a shout out to Ben Croft over here in Western Australia? You put me onto the suck and also to my American pen pal, Nathan Cambrone and his family, who I met on the Facebook page. He actually gave me a shout out at the end of the Titanic suck. It's your head out there. So if this gets the read out, that would be awesome. Keep up the great work, Bad Magic team, all the best. Fuck yeah, Scott. You fucking cunt. You fuck. <laughs> ah, I can't keep the uh, accent up anymore. It's probably doing it terribly. I know, I've been saying uh, uh, Aussie all the time now. I always thought it was Aussie. I like saying it Aussie. Aussie. Oi. Uh, I also like saying fuckwit. Dickweed. Yeah, you fucking dickweed. Love Aussie swear words. Ah, I'm glad we have some uh, WA suckers enjoying some WA history. Now for a uh, shout out request, some good advice coming up from Sweet Saka, Jackie Berry. What if I just started that? It's so annoying all the time. Just doing a lame Australian accent constantly every show. Hey, hello, welcome to So, hail, hail Nimrod. Uh, hail Lucifina. Praiseable Jangers. Glory be to uh, Michael motherfucking McDonald. Fucking cunt. Fucking dickweed. Hey, Dan. Uh, my name is Jackie. I've written in a few times. I wanted to write in and tell you how thankful I am for the Time Sick Podcast. Thank you. My little sister, Renna, recently made a mistake that nearly took her life. She's had the hardest year this year, losing her first marriage, or losing her marriage, sorry, fighting for the custody of her youngest child, struggling with medical issues, financial problems left and right, just turned the young age of 21 in December. I introduced her to your podcast over a year ago. It has been something we have had in common since then. She and I have not always gotten along. There have been a lot of times when we haven't spoken because of stupid little disagreements. Ah, family. 
When my mom told me about what happened, all I could think was, why wasn't I there for her? I reached out. Since then, we've talked pretty much every day. She still gets on my nerves, as little sisters do, but she's my baby sister. I couldn't imagine my life without her in it. One of the main things we talk about is you and your podcast. We both love it so much. Have so many dark and hilarious conversations about it. Love it. Gives us something else to talk about and a connection we had lost over the years. Just wanted to say thank you for that. And if you read this on the show, could you give a shout out to my little shithead sister, Rena? Re, you drive me nuts. And I know we don't always see eye to eye, but you, you're my psycho little sister. I love you always. Ah. You're never alone in life. Even when you think I won't be there, I will always be. I will forever be your older sister and sorry, loser, but there's no returns. And to anyone who feels alone and feels there's no way out, please don't do it. You matter. And the only way to go from the bottom is up. Only, yeah, only place to go from the bottom is up. If you know someone struggling with mental illness, please be there, even when it's hard, because they need to know they're never alone. Thanks again, Suckmaster Supreme. May the great God Amway bless you always with cheap soaps and MLM products. Sincerely, your forever sucker, Jackie B. Well, thank you, Jackie B. So glad bonding over some silliness helps you and your sister find some joy, helps uh, cement the relationship between you two. Life is short. Cram in as much fun as you can. Uh, the good God Amway is pleased by what's going on with you two. And now I'm going to end today on some cool info inspired by the Dante's Inferno Suck. Knowledgeable Meat Sack, Jordan Broom writes, Hey Dan, longtime comedy and podcast fan here. Don't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Listening to the Dante's Inferno Suck, the part about vellum took me back to history class, one I had a few months ago. And I thought you and the gang may appreciate these tidbits. The Bible, one of the original texts put to skin, took about a whole herd of cattle to produce and was often more expensive than the church in which it sat. Also, concerning medieval illiteracy, priests were the original professors, so named because they were allowed to teach the common man to read only under the condition that they profess their faith while doing so. I did not know that. I hope the cult finds this as interesting as I did. Continue forth with thine suckage, my lord. Jordan. Well, thank you, Jordan. A whole herd of cattle. Ah, man, more expensive than the church sometimes. God, how lucky are we now to live in an era where you can just grab books digitally for free, oftentimes. Amazing times we live in. Amazing times. Hail Nimrod, everyone. Thank you for those updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for the uh, recent ratings and reviews, everyone. Three out of five stars uh, joke still going strong. I love it. I love how confusing it is for so many people. Bo uh, more Bad Magic Productions content throughout the week if you're interested. Chills with Scared to Death late Tuesday nights. Laughs with Is We Dumb Wednesdays at noon. These times specific. Uh, the Secret Suck on Thursdays for Space Desserts Only. Uh, if you're going to launch a PMC this week, don't hire Agent Whiffler Dinkle to run it. Ah, oh, half pint. You get Michael motherfucking Landon. Or, you know, his, his ghost, I guess. And you keep on sucking. Here at the Suck Dungeon, we have our very own A-Team. We have Joe Bazooka Joe Paisley doing the audio engineering, doing making posts of things, of cool pictures. Yeah. Yes, making laughs with the Is We Dumb. And yeah. we also have so many. I'm the only one here. Just you, Just you and I, buddy. <laughs> And I'm here too. Yeah. And I did some things. Uh-huh. We got the the P team. The P team. With Paisley. And that's about it. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.